When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bernie and Sid in the morning. Alexa, enable the 77 WABC skill and listen worldwide to an American original. 1071 WLIRFM, Hampton Bays, and This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, it's a big news day. We are going to be uh, covering this situation in Eastern Europe. Uh, good morrow, everybody. You know, we knew that this was uh, a possibility. I have to tell you, if you listen to this program from Monday... I did not think an attack of the, an invasion of this magnitude was was likely. And I said so on Monday and explained the reasons why. This is certainly an act of aggression by Vladimir Putin and Russia into Ukraine. And right now we are seeing the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, institute martial law. We'll bring you updates on what that means and what the situation is here. I really and uh, look. As I said to Dominic Carter a few minutes ago, I don't want to politicize this because there's plenty of blame on both sides going back 30 years. I do think uh, President Biden has mishandled many aspects of this uh, this whole issue here. And I was a little amazed at um, and we're going to bring you updates throughout the next four hours. I was a little amazed at what we heard from the press secretary for the Biden administration Jen Psaki regarding the domestic issue here. Now, my position is that the United States should try to do whatever we can to try to avoid worsening the conflict with Russia. I think both diplomats in both countries, all three countries, need to look for an off ramp here. And I would encourage you, if you didn't listen to my interview with George Beebe yesterday, we may play some clips of you for that of the uh, for you of that interview throughout the program. If you didn't listen to my interview with George Beebe, he perfectly laid out the history here, how we got here. He perfectly laid out a the worst and best case scenarios for the future and um, explained that, um, you know, there's still there's a lot of blame to go around here. Uh, This is not as if the United States and the leadership of the people in the United States over the course of the last 30 years are free of blame. We are absolutely not. Now, uh, whenever you have explosions, whenever you have air raid sirens, uh, whenever you have people fleeing their homes, that's all a recipe for disaster. And uh, we pray, at least I pray, that the loss of life is minimal and the injuries here are minimal. Now, I was surprised at the reaction from the White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, yesterday as she was asked a question about inflation and the economy and uh, her answer with respect to Ukraine, I found absolutely 
uh, mind-boggling, to be honest. This was White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki yesterday. Thank you. Go ahead, Peter. Thanks, Jen. Following up on Weech's question, a lot of focus on the economic pain in Russia, potentially, from these sanctions. But what about the economic pain here? Uh, The Russians are saying they think gas prices in Europe are going to double. How high could they get here? Well, I think, again, Peter, as I said to Weech, I mean, some of this depends on what President Putin does. So as he is suggesting what the impact will be around the world, it's all based on what his actions are just to be very clear about it. What the president is focused on and is working on is taking every step we can to to communicate with, coordinate with, engage with uh, big global suppliers around the world to minimize the impact on the energy markets. But even without all this going on, gas in California is almost $5 a gallon. Should people across the country expect to see that kind of a number when they go to gas up their car? $5, $6? Well, again, I think as you heard the president say last week, uh, standing up for our values is not without cost. What we're trying to do is minimize that cost. So I don't have a prediction of it right now because we're trying to minimize the impact on the global energy markets. Okay. I found that answer bizarre and incredibly tone deaf, to be honest. So we've seen inflation all year at 40-year highs. And she's somehow saying that the uh, dramatic rise in gas prices that we're about to experience, that that's due to Ukraine and Russia. I mean, come on. Uh, who, who who I mean, it, does she have a, a bridge uh, along the uh, Crimea River that she wants to sell us? I mean, that's ridiculous. Now, aside from that, uh, we are about to see if these uh, this ratcheting up of U.S. Russian tensions continues to escalate. We are about to see a real problem when it comes to the American economy, because as George Beebe said to me yesterday, it's not as if these sanctions on Russia are not going to have any impact on us. I was amazed yesterday to read reports that President Biden is now begging big oil and Saudi Arabia to pump more oil and to lower their prices. These are two entities uh, that President Biden has had no problem villainizing from time to time. But and, and this was all after killing the Keystone Pipeline. But for all the talk of inflation there and, you know, we hear two cents more a gallon for gasoline, five cents more a gallon for gasoline, 30 cents more a gallon, 40 cents more a gallon, whatever it is. It's bad. And look, I have to pay it as you do. And that causes the price of everything to go up. We see the price of uh, milk going up 15, 30 cents, a dollar a gallon. Oh, bad. Terrible. Terrible. But there is one aspect of the inflation story that has not really been covered by the press. And that is the issue of prescription drugs. Prescription drug prices in this country have risen two and a half percent since the start of the pandemic. Now, that includes drugs that you will die if you don't keep taking. We have seen incredible inflation for the price of prescription drugs, not just these fancy brand names, but these generic drugs. And this didn't just begin with COVID. This didn't just begin with the recent supply chain problem. This didn't just begin with the recent inflation crisis. Since 2014, drug prices have increased 35%. Now, imagine if you need an EpiPen to save your life or some sort of a pill that you need to keep purchasing. That's real money. The uh, drugs 
that save people's lives are now cost more than they ever have. And a lot of Americans are struggling to afford their medication. We're seeing a third of Americans reporting that they're skipping a prescription drug due to cost. And uh, we're also seeing that this is only getting worse. And look, uh, Joe Manchin's daughter, she was involved in that whole EpiPen scandal as the uh, head of uh, Mylan, where they were keeping the price, and now we know this, they were keeping the price of the EpiPen artificially high. And uh, I think that's something that uh, she and other drug company CEOs are going to have to pay the piper for eventually. But uh, I highlighted Mark Cuban's attempts about a month ago to launch an online pharmacy aimed at lowering generic drug prices. See, what's what's happened in the world of generic drugs is so interesting. See, the way that drugs work is, look, and I know these pharmaceutical companies do need to spend a lot of money on research and development, and they get a patent to sell that drug for 12 years or 14 years, and then... They get to, you know, charge a lot of money for the for that for 14 years or so. And then after that, be they anybody can make it. And that's why generic drug prices used to be so reasonable. You could take a drug that was patented by some company 14 years ago, even though a lot of the technology that uh, and a lot of the development that comes into the development of these drugs is developed by the NIH, the taxpayers. I've spoken with Ralph Nader about that previously. You could make these drugs yourself and sell them as generic. There's no copyright on that drug after 12 or 14 years. But what we've seen over the last few years is the price of these generic drugs skyrocketing. And you're seeing this because the pharmaceutical companies and or the hedge funds that they partner with buy up these plants that are making these generic drugs. And whereas there used to be 15, 16, 17 people making drugs that were commonly taken, because drugs that are only taken by a few people who have very, very specific ailments, those are still a de facto monopoly because uh, there's, there's not a market if, you know, there's not a market for 15 or 16 different drug makers. So if there's only one drug maker making it, they still essentially get a veto power over the prices. But these hedge funds and these pharmaceutical companies have been buying up the generic drug manufacturers and essentially instituting some sort of a price collusion. And with Mark Cuban, who's the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, instituting this Mark Cuban cost plus drug company, and instituting this online pharmacy, which is aimed at uh, reducing the price of generic drugs. I think that's a very positive thing. And what he's doing, because he's pointed out how much the drug companies are engaging in price gouging, he's saying all drugs are going to be priced at cost plus 15%. So he's still going to make money, and the drug companies can still make money, but he's not going to be engaging in the kind of price gouging that we're seeing. I wish him the best of luck. I, you know, it's funny. Most of us think of generics as the less expensive alternative to the brand name of the prescription drugs, and that's often the case. 
But the market for some generic drugs is so small that it doesn't attract multiple producers. And then you see when these hedge funds acquire these pharmaceutical companies, people like Martin Shkreli, the so-called pharma bro, they get the rights to the drug and they raise the price 5,000 percent. And there's all sorts of unanticipated safety issues that can limit the supply of a generic drug. There was a, a plant in New Jersey in 2011 that was forced to stop production of a drug, and it led to the rise of that drug's price by 6,000%. It can be difficult and expensive for a manufacturer to get a generic drug to market in the first place. And also, sometimes what they do is they'll have a drug that becomes generic, and then they'll just tweak the formula for that drug ever so slightly, and then they get to get a new patent and get another 12 or another 14 years to sell that drug as a uh, monopoly. So, look, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about the price of gas and the price of milk. I think we should. But if there's one area where I think the inflation issue has the deadliest consequences, it's inflation when it comes to prescription drugs. And the reason, uh, look, I'm wishing Mark Cuban the best, but I'm... uh, I have very measured expectations about what he's going to be able to do because most of these most of these people that take these super expensive generic drugs they're not uninsured. Most of them get them through their insurance plan. So Cuban's new firm I think may struggle to make a significant impact here because even if it substantially undercuts existing providers because until recently you saw prescription drugs were a modest, low-variance expense, often not covered by insurance. Now, a lot of the time, it is covered by insurance, and the insurance company works out their own deal with the prescription drug company. So uh, the rise of these third-party purchasing applications for prescription drugs, it might fuel more investment in developing new drugs I'm not sure it's going to lead to a a tremendous drop in price for the consumer. Generic drugs account for 90% of the prescriptions in this country. So we're going to keep an eye on that. By the way, there was an interesting article in in The New Yorker all about how the pharmaceutical industry has managed to evade all sorts of reforms that a supermajority of the public wants. It's called This Is How Big Pharma Wins. And these are reforms supported by Democrats, Republicans, independents, conservatives, liberals, and Big Pharma has stifled these every step of the way. All right. uh, We'll take your calls on the Russia-Ukraine situation. It is, we are, as a radio station, commemorating Black History Month today. And I am very excited about who you're going to hear from next. Victor Glover is a, and he's a phenomenal human being. He's a real pioneer. He's an astronaut. He was a pilot on the first operational flight of the SpaceX Crew Dragon to the International Space Station. He's also a commander in the uh, United States Navy. Now, I actually recorded this interview with Commander Glover uh, yesterday afternoon. So this was before Russia went into uh, Ukraine. Otherwise, you know, you'd be listening to this interview and you'd think, well, how can Frank be interviewing a naval commander? And not ask his opinion about this latest incursion. I'm not tone deaf, but uh, I think he still has a lot to add and a lot to say. And we're going to cover a lot of ground in that interview. Then, 
Some positive news in our area is that it looks like schools are slowly but surely reopening and, heaven forbid, they may even allow students to take off their masks. Imagine that. So what skills are students in schools not learning? We're going to get into that with Bob Wolf in the 2 o'clock hour. And it's Thursday, so we'll do the AC report with uh, Harry Hurley Coming up at 3.30, Harry's also an astute observer of the geopolitical scene. We'll ask his take on the Russia-Ukraine situation. And there'll be plenty of opportunities for uh, for your phone calls as well. 800-848-WABC. Victor Glover, a genuine, honest-to-God astronaut, joins me straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. Well, it was more than 50 years ago when William Shatner on Star Trek in his opening narration referred to space as the final frontier. Now, we spend a lot of time on this program talking about space, but I'm betting as much time as we spend talking about space, we don't spend nearly as much time as you might spend wondering about space, looking up and wondering What's out there? What must it be like to visit? What must it be like to see the Earth from there? Well, uh, joined right now by a man who doesn't have to imagine. He may do a fair amount of looking and wondering, but he's been in the rare position to actually look at Earth from space. Uh, very pleased to be joined by Victor Glover, a NASA astronaut and pilot on the first operational flight of the SpaceX Crew Dragon to the International Space Station. He is a commander in the U.S. Navy, a graduate, a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School, and he was a crew member of Expedition 64 and served as a station systems flight engineer. So if there's a guy that knows his way around space, it's Victor Glover. Victor, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Uh, it's great to be here, Frank. Thank you for having me. You know, even with the prevalence of uh, private space travel and people being able to go to space a little bit more easily than they did 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, it's still a pretty rare thing uh, to be able to go to space and call yourself an astronaut. When did you know that you wanted to be an astronaut? Was this something that you uh, always harbored ambitions of, uh, of doing, or was this something that you just sort of fell into given your pilot training and your experience in the military? Well, a little bit of both. You know, as a kid, I was very interested in the, uh, the, the high adrenaline uh, career fields. I wanted to be a stuntman, a race car driver, a fireman, and a policeman like my father. And, and I saw a shuttle launch on TV, and, and I thought, I want to I drive that thing. And I didn't know any pilots or astronauts, you know, so I didn't know you had to fly it. But I wanted to drive the space shuttle. And uh, I would say that's when the seed was planted. And then going off and, and studying engineering in college, but also wrestling in college and, and, and sports, again, continuing to you know, feed that like high-performing, high-op-tempo, uh, challenging uh, environment, but with small teams. Uh, and then I would actually wind up going into the Navy out of college 
and and going into aviation. And I was in test pilot school when I heard Pam Melroy give a talk about her mission, one of the few female shuttle commanders we've had, and listening to her talk about the people she worked with, not just the technical things that they accomplished, but the people that they were and how much respect she had for them as their commander. Really, that's when I decided, okay, yeah, that plant is, is full grown. I'm gonna I'm gonna apply and and see what NASA has to say. Tell me about the moment when you get the call, or I don't know if it's a call or an email or a text message, let, or maybe it's an in-person interaction, where you learn that you're going to space. What was that circumstance? When was it? Who told you that you were going to space? And what was your reaction like? Well, so I think uh, there there are two calls that I think are significant. Uh, the first one is the call to become an astronaut candidate. Uh, I was working on Capitol Hill uh, in in an office in the Senate, and I actually missed a call from Houston. <laughs> and I got a, oh boy. a message. I ran out in the hallway and called back, and I was on hold what seemed like forever. And then uh, they put me through to Janet Cavandi, who was the chair of our astronaut candidate selection board. And she said, how would you like to come to Houston and start astronaut candidate training? I said, yes, of course. And I hung up the phone, and I'm looking around, this military officer, you know, and I've got this suit on, and I'm standing by all these marble statues with all this brass. And I'm looking, and I'm just going, man, this is totally a dream. And I actually pinched myself. I physically pinched myself. Uh, and then it was interesting because the next day, I, I, called, I called my wife and my dad and my mom and told them the news. But the next day, we all had emails, the eight of us who were selected in 2013, we all had emails from Janet Cavani that said it was not a dream. So that was actually, that was actually, <laughs> that was a great uh, few days. And then the next call is when I got assigned to the, uh, to the Crew One mission. And so I had been working with what we call the Commercial Crew Program, the program that helped to get the, uh, the, the, these new American spacecraft flying. And so I was assigned to a SpaceX mission with Mike Hopkins at the time. It was just the two of us, and we were later joined by Shannon Walker and Soichi Noguchi. And that call, I actually was on vacation. Uh, my wife and I were on a cruise, uh, on a cruise ship, and, and I got an email and so I wrote my boss back and said, I can, I'm actually in cell phone range. I could call you. And so we talked on the phone and he had told me the, his plan and who I would fly with, that I would be with, uh, I'd be the pilot with uh, Mike Hopkins as the commander. And he wanted to know how I felt about that. And I told him I was really excited, looking forward to it, make, doing my best and making him proud. And so that was a, that was also a really good day, especially because I was on vacation with my wife and it was just the two of us and we had time to, to really talk about what that meant for our family. When, when the space program first started in this country, the government sort of had and world governments sort of had a monopoly on going to space. Even when you first became an astronaut almost 10 years ago, it was generally thought that, you know, if you want to go to space, it's the government that is the mechanism for being able to do that uh, through NASA and other similar entities in other countries these days. We're seeing tremendous private sector investment into space exploration led by people like Elon Musk and Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos. In your view, is that transition from public sector to private sector for space exploration, is that a, is that a positive, a negative, or uh, are, is the jury still out on uh, how that transition is working out? Uh, I mean, I would say it's absolutely positive. 
uh, we have to continue to make sure that we're vigilant and that we do it safely and, and to the best of our ability to make sure that we send people up and more important, bring them home safe. Uh, and as long as we are vigilant, I think it, it will always be a positive because that's a part of what we are here to do. Uh, you know, you look at the work that, that SpaceX has done, and a lot of it was in partnership with NASA. And a lot of what we mm-hmm. accomplish in our crew program is, start, is supported, uh, actually, the cargo vehicle. Uh, a lot of what we accomplished with our cargo vehicle with SpaceX enabled them to develop a crew vehicle, and developing a crew vehicle for NASA has enabled them to fly private missions where there's no government backing, like you mentioned earlier. So I, I think they work together, and, and it's it's a, it's really indicative of, of the really amazing innovation uh, and development that, that uh, is going on right now. But I think it is unquestionably positive, and we just have to remain vigilant. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Victor Jerome Glover, uh, an honest-to-God astronaut who was on the first operational flight of the SpaceX Crew Dragon to the International Space Station. He uh, it was also a crew member of Expedition 64. We, You're an honest-to-God astronaut, Victor, and uh, we've seen people like you, John Glenn, Neil Armstrong, uh, celebrated and uh, feted over the years by uh, the public, by scientists, by uh, the military, academics alike. Then we've seen people who uh, are able to spend a lot of money uh, to buy a ticket to go to space. At least early on, they were called astronauts as well, even though they weren't piloting a space uh, shuttle, they weren't doing any experiments out in space. In your opinion, should the people who go on a private space flight uh, just through buying a ticket, should those folks be able to call themselves astronauts the same way that you're called an astronaut? Yeah, you know, Frank, that's a great question, and I think it's – it's an issue if we make it an issue, right? It's like a first world problem if there is one. What do we call sure, you? Sure. Uh, I, I think it's the, the distinctions between what I do for a living, right? I was an astronaut by job title before I flew in space, whereas most of these missions, these private missions, they accomplish an activity that, that they use now that they were an astronaut to, because they flew in space. And that, that may seem subtle, uh, but, but that nuance, I think, is important. This is what I do for a living. And so, you know, someone may want to use the distinction like professional astronaut or, I mean, I am what I am. I am a NASA astronaut, and that is different. And so it's one thing to go and do an activity as an astronaut you know, uh, and another thing to be in this profession. And here's the other thing, though. Even though I've been here going on a decade, one day I won't do this. And when I leave this, I will be a former NASA astronaut. And Mm. so we uh, very much are concerned about being engaged in this activity. But, But again, I think this is a great problem to have, you know. Uh, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Elon Musk. The most important thing when I think about those folks, two of those having gone to space, is that they have for decades created lots of great quality science and technology jobs. And they have really grown this industry and changed the game, literally. They've changed the planet with their efforts. Uh, And so I think that that's really important. You know, what they call themselves, if it was a part of their personal dream to go to space and being an astronaut helped them to do that, and to, to change this industry, then, then I think that's a positive. It's a positive. And our partnerships with those that we have are, are, are great and still producing new capabilities. 
uh, I'm working with SpaceX right now for the system that's going to land the next human beings on the moon. And that's pretty significant, not super significant. And so I think that relationship is important, more important than what we call, you know, one another, whoever goes above 50 or 62 miles uh, above the surface of the earth, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's important that we get as many people into space as we can, but we may never be able to get them all. Uh, and those of us that go, I think, have a responsibility to share share that experience with other people. And so I don't have any problem calling those folks astronauts. I think what they've done takes courage and, and, and vigilance from all of us. Uh, while I don't get to see a lot of films these days as the father of a uh, of a three-month-old, I do consider myself something of a, a film buff. And whenever I interview gangsters, politicians, law enforcement officials, FBI agents, anybody that's been part of a world that I'm unfamiliar with and I think a lot of our listeners might be unfamiliar with, I always ask them the same question. I ask them, of all the films that we might have seen in that given genre depicting any of the things that I just mentioned, what's the most realistic? As far as you're concerned, as a genuine, honest-to-God astronaut, someone that's been to space, someone that's been on the International Space Station, of all of the, sp- the films de- depicting space travel that you've seen, What's the most realistic? Oh, wow. That is a great question. And I I, I think I'm going to have to talk about two. I think I have to give you two. Uh, Two jump out at me right away. And one is The Martian. And I think that's because it's contemporary. It was recent. Mm. uh, and, and, And it really shows the science and technical parts of it. Even though we haven't sent humans to Mars, there weren't many things in that movie that were not accurate. I mean, the, the, the density of the air on Mars was a, a little bit unreal, the storm that was there. But other than that, the, the, the way the Martian was presented is very much how NASA could go about accomplishing a, a human mission to Mars. So that was great. But something else that jumps out at me after my time in space is how important it, the, the family piece and the social-emotional connection and emotional regulation. And, and so the uh, first man, first man also jumps out at me to, as, as a, a part, that part, a part of the psychological and emotional at impact of, of leaving the planet for a, a, a period of time. First man and the Martian. Well, uh, those are both great films, and uh, I'm not surprised that uh, those are among the first that people mentioned. You get the sense that there's elements of reality in both. Now, when those of us that never have been to space go, there are certain things that we uh, picture that we think about the idea of weightlessness and zero gravity, the idea of maybe being in a sort of a confined space, uh, the idea of missing our family, our friends, our loved ones on Earth. But whenever you do something that's new, I'm sure there's all sorts of surprising things that never occur to somebody. In your opinion, if you had to pick uh, the most surprising thing to you about going to space, what was it? Oh, gosh. The most surprising thing. Oh, you know, I think weightlessness, it it has this ability to make hard things easy and easy things hard. And so, and that's the case the whole time, right? You, you can't simply open... Uh, a bag of potato chips in space, they will fly all over the place, right? And so, but your your life experience up to that point is you open a bag of things and they stay in the bag, but that doesn't happen in weightlessness. And so I would say the, the most surprising thing in general 
was just how everyday normal things that we take for granted were some of the more difficult, challenging things to do in space. For example, just moving around. We get it very quickly. Your brain and body adapt to weightlessness or coming back to Earth very quickly. But the first couple of days in space, I am surprised at how clumsy I was. I kept smacking Hmm. into corners and bumping into things. And it's like, man, I've seen people fly in the movies, and it's easier than this. They look much more suave and debonair and and then trying to to really get good at it. And and then over time, you become very efficient. Uh, But, yes, I was surprised at how basic things, eating, drinking water, uh, and and things like that. Early on, I was drinking water and trying to talk to one of my crewmates, and I realized I should not try to drink and talk at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine. I can imagine uh, if people uh, just tuning in, we're talking with Victor Glover, an honest-to-God astronaut, uh, part of the uh, the uh, Expedition 64 project, somebody that was part of the SpaceX uh, crew to the International Space uh, Station. Victor, I realize this is going to sound like a, an odd question, but, uh, but bear with me because this is overnight radio, and uh, I take a lot of fact, a lot of pride in the fact that we take calls from all walks of life. And uh, last week, I had a detailed call uh, from someone that had a whole lot of um, explanation, a whole lot of anecdotal evidence as to why he believed that the earth was not the uh, sphere that so many of us grew up that it was, that it was actually uh, some version of being flat. As somebody that has the unique distinction of having been to space and has looked down upon the Earth, can you state unequivocally that the Earth is round and a sphere and not actually flat? Uh, unequivocally, it is. It is. It is what we were taught. It's not a perfect globe. We call it an ellipsoid. Uh, and even that is too perfect of a shape. It's kind of like a tomato, if you will, a little bit flattened on on edges, top and bottom. But it is definitely uh, a spheroid. You know, it's it's spherical. And 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 to if you understand what orbit is, we orbit around the Earth wouldn't be possible if if the Earth was not round uh, in three dimensions, uh, which is what a sphere is. And so uh, we we circle the globe. And we're going so fast that as we fall, we actually fall. Uh, we're falling at the same speed we are, uh, the ground is moving away from us. And so we're moving across the ground and falling. And that's why everything floats. Weightlessness is actually perpetual free fall. And that's uh, uh, only possible if you're moving around a, a spherical object. And uh, why do you think a theory like that, the flat Earth theory, seems to have gotten new legs uh, in recent years? I mean, you thought maybe we put that to bed in the 14th or 15th century at the latest, but there's this growing chorus of folks on the Internet. I'm deluged with uh, correspondence from them on Twitter that embraces this idea of a flat Earth. What's that about? Yeah, Frank, I'm glad you brought this up, actually, and you apologized at first, but I'm glad you brought this up because it is a pretty wide-held view. I'm surprised at how widespread, but it's important, and it's important that we don't discount that either because so many people uh, do have questions, and I think it's important for us to talk about the questions. I don't know if it's really resurged. I think it's maybe just been there, and social media and and the connectivity, the, the, Hmm. the megaphone, 
that the Internet gives to people has made it seem more prevalent. Uh, but I think it's it's because of something that's just human nature. We believe what we can see and touch uh, easier than the things that we can't see and can't touch. And so people that haven't been to space, haven't seen Earth uh, from orbit uh, for themselves, it's, it's really challenging for them to accept it if they have indications uh, uh, otherwise. And when you walk around on this big spheroid on your own, it looks flat to you, even though if you go out on a cruise ship and sail towards Hawaii, Hawaii appears to grow out of the ocean slowly as you get closer. That's an aspect of it being round. It's just really big and round. But but I think it's because of human nature. We value our primary experience uh, over other things. And so that's human nature. But it, but there's also something else socially going on that we have to talk about, which is why I'm glad you brought this up. It's trust. It's trusting in each other. And so for someone to, to hear me talk about my experience and, and that to matter to them, they have to trust me. And and I don't I don't walk into things assuming people are going to just trust me. Yeah, because I wear this blue flight suit and it says astronaut on it, that uh, they're going to just take my word for, you know, as, as the truth. And so um, there are lots of ways to, to go out and find your own primary evidence without having to go to space. There are things we can do. And so if someone's really, truly interested in understanding, we have ways to get there. Uh, but I think it's just a part of human nature to believe in what you can see and experience yourself. You have the call sign Ike, just like President Eisenhower. How did you get the nickname Ike? <laughs> okay, Ike. Here's the short story. I'll say it's Ike. It stands for I know everything. It's short. I for- know everything. <laughs> yes. I wish it was like uh, General President Eisenhower, but it's really an acronym. I know everything. And it's a short for I think I know everything. And so my call sign is a reminder to never pass up an opportunity to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> uh, fair enough. In your in your view, Victor, do simulators adequately prepare you for the space missions that you've been on? Well, it depends on what you mean by adequate. Uh, they don't uh, prepare you uh, completely, but they are important. You need them, and they're vital. Uh, but uh, part of uh, learning to work and live in space is being able to let space teach you what it has to teach you as well. Certain things that you just cannot experience until you are in weightlessness, and and you have to let weightlessness teach you uh, what it has, what lessons it has for you. Uh, but, yeah, simulators are absolutely critical, even if they aren't 100 percent representative of the environment you're going in. During your stay on the International Space Station, and I appreciate you being so generous with your time. Uh, it's just so rare that I get to talk with someone that has had your experience and uh, has seen the things that you've seen. But during your stay on the International Space Station, you were selected for the NASA's Artemis program. Uh, the uh, the linchpin sort of of the Artemis program is going back to the moon. You know, there was so much excitement in the NASA program and in the United States in general about going to the moon in the late 60s, early 70s. But we haven't been there in uh, since the early 1970s. Why is that the case? Why do you think the moon sort of fell out of favor and became less of a priority for American-led space travel? Frank, uh, to be completely honest with you, I would say it's uh, geopolitics. That's the short answer. It was uh, geopolitics. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about science exploration, technology development and demonstration. It was politics. And the political goal had been realized, 
and and so you see what uh, history had ensued. And so now we're hopefully going back, and there may be a geopolitical facet, but there's also very much a sustainability, science, technology development, and economic development facet as well, or facets, and, and hopefully those uh, have much more staying power uh, to keep us uh, in the vicinity of the moon. What is the grand total cumulatively of time that you have spent off the planet? Well, uh, if you don't count flying in the air, my time in space is 168 days. Wow. My goodness. <laughs> um, uh, you know, there was a, an interesting story that I came across this week that being in space could actually have an interesting effect on rewiring uh, your brain, yeah, that there's huge brain rewiring in astronauts who spend at least six months in space. Did you have any physical differences when you returned to Earth and uh, anything long-term that you noticed in your own body? Uh, well, let's see. I think, uh, you know, a common thing we work hard to mitigate is uh, muscle and bone loss. So we we have uh, vitamin supplements we take. We do lots of strength and cardiovascular training while we're up there. Uh, and those that helps the muscles and your bones as well. And we try to limit the amount of salt that we eat. And so, again, what we're learning in space also helps folks here on the ground that are suffering from mm. uh, muscular uh, musculoskeletal issues. And so uh, I had bone loss. I, I worked out really hard. I worked very hard, I think, on, for, on the exercise front in space. And I still had a, a little bit of bone loss. They say I'll recover that within a year. Uh, but I still had bone loss. And so that was one aspect, it, not just the amount, too. It's not just quantity of bone. It's the quality of your bone. You have these two cortical and trabecular bone, the spongy and the, and the, and the uh, uh, brittle bone. And so the, the ratio of those also changes. Something about the way we reclaim and lay down new bone changes in space. It's called osteopenia, and it's analogous to osteoporosis. So we're also learning things that uh, can help osteoporosis osteoporosis patients. Uh, I didn't notice any changes to my vision, but that's something that we're always thinking about hmm. as well, uh, uh, managing that. And so we are constantly scanning the eyes of, of space explorers and, and uh, ma watching their vision and also just the, the topography of their eye and the back of their eye. And we take photos of that over the course of the mission. Um, and let's see, I, you know, I, I stretched out about an inch while I was in space. I lost that back. And then when I came back to Earth, I was wobbly and I felt strong and I could stand up, but it was really hard to balance. And that all adjusted. Like I said, your brain and body adjust pretty quickly going up and coming down. And, and I never felt motion sickness. So that I was very fortunate in that regard. Uh, but I, I think, you know, you said something about your brain being re rewired. And I think while I was in space, I did feel like a heightened sensitivity to my surroundings. I just felt like I was really aware of my surroundings and the beauty of the earth. And I did a lot of writing and I still go back and read my journal entries. And I'm, I am like, wow, you know, that's right. I remember all of those things. I do think my brain, because it was working so hard, uh, you know, one of the primary functions of our brain is to keep track of where we are. And when you take away the gravity vector, that makes that much more complicated. And so I think my brain was just working harder. It was in a higher gear. Uh, and so I, I just I think I felt the benefit of that in reading and writing. And and uh, and I tried to capture as much of that. Uh, it was kind of like running an experiment on myself. Uh, but I definitely felt uh, like my brain was working really hard while I was in space. How would you describe the comfort? 
of the Crew Dragon spacecraft versus the older spacecraft? Well, uh, by older spacecraft, you know, in, in recent times, we've got a Soyuz, uh, the, the spacecraft we fly with our Russian partners, and we had the space shuttle uh, that we were flying back up until uh, 2011. And so when you look at both of those, the seats on the space shuttle are pretty analogous to the seats uh, in Dragon. Uh, that some of the hardware is a little different. The suit interface is different. So I would say overall, it was it's a very comfortable version of that, uh, but it's they're both very large seats. When you look at Soyuz, uh, we're still flying those with the Russian Space Agency now and our partner Cosmonauts there. And that seat, oh, they're very tiny. You have to have your seat custom molded and you sit kind of in a crouched position. And so that's the biggest difference in terms of comfort. Uh, when, when people look inside the spacecraft, they are looking in the descent module usually where the seats are. And so they think that, well, it is, the, the, cab, the cabin is much smaller than our Crew Dragon. But when you add the descent module with something we call the orbital module, uh, it's a, a module that the Soyuz crews can go into if they have a longer rendezvous, uh, then they have uh, an opportunity to go and, and drink water or use the bathroom. They're both, mm. vehicle, both, both vehicles have about 10 cubic meters of space, and they're, they're similar in size when you add both of those together. But in terms of the seats, the seats themselves, I would say the, the Crew Dragon is kind of like a lazy boy compared to the, uh, the uh, uh, you know, having to, to, to crouch down into the seat of a Soyuz. This is Black History Month. We're celebrating a lot of African-American trailblazers, pioneers, and people that have been the first to do various things. You were the first African-American crew member to live on the International Space Station. Do you view your own career trajectory and your own life as an inspiration to other young black children that may have aspirations of going to space, or is that not something that you think about? How cognizant are you of the fact that you're the uh, first uh, black uh, astronaut to do something so significant, like live on the International Space Station? Yeah, Frank, I'm cognizant of it. You know, I'm cognizant of the legacy of folks who uh, I stand on the shoulders of, black astronauts and other astronauts. And I think it's important that I give honor to that legacy. And, you know, what I did is special, but I think it's even more special that I'm not going to be the last black astronaut to live on the space station. My colleague Jessica Watkins is going to launch here in a few months. I'm really happy about that. And so I, I do think about it. But, you know, I think it's this job is so unique, right? None of us deserves to do this. A few of us just are blessed to get to do so. And I try to be the best representative that I can of, of NASA and, and our nation and of, of humanity. And so uh, in doing that, I, by nature of what we do, riding rockets, doing these great science experiments and, and sharing that with the, the public, uh, if it inspires people, well, great. I don't walk around my house or in my normal life thinking I am an inspiration to people. But when I go places and, and what we get to share, what we do as a team here, uh, it, it's inspiring to people. And so I think of that as a responsibility. I have a duty to use that to do the most good that I can for society. And so I am cognizant of it, but I'm also cognizant of the fact I had a I had a young man say to me when I first showed up here, and this really stuck with me, he was asking me about flying F-18s and what I was looking forward to and going to space. And he was maybe seven years old and, and he's a young, he's a young white kid. And, you know, we're just, I'm describing to him what I, what, you know, what I'm excited about is 
maybe dreaming of wa- working and walking on the moon and going to the space station. And he says, you know, you're like a real life Captain America. <laughs> and that, that really impacted me. And so, you know what? I hope that what I am doing is meaningful, period, as a part of American history, as a part of the whole history of this country. And if that inspires young black kids, that's great. It should, because I look like them. I am. I was them. But you know what? It's also much bigger than that. And I think we are inspiring the next generation, the whole thing, all the kids of all walks of life, I think, can look up to what it is that we get what we have the fortune of doing here for NASA. Well, uh, you certainly have inspired me uh, with your accomplishments in your career and just hearing your enthusiasm for space travel and challenging the limits of uh, the human experience. And I wish you the best of luck. I'm eager to see what happens next with you, whether it's the moon, whether it's Mars, whether it's uh, something else that's uh, that's extraordinary. Victor J. Glover, I can't thank you enough for the time this morning. Uh, I'll look forward to our next conversation. It's great talking to you, Frank. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. Our phone number is 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. On the other side of midnight, this is Frank Morano here on 77 WABC with you until 5 o'clock this morning. Take your calls in just a moment at 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. We are monitoring the situation in Ukraine. There are a lot of conflicting reports about what's actually happening in Ukraine. Uh, You have a situation where, uh, as of now, Russia is claiming that they have disabled Ukraine's air defenses. And uh, we're also seeing that, um, you know, uh, there's a claim that um, uh, there's completing claims going on in terms of what's actually happening in uh, in the Donbass region at the moment and even west of the Donbass region. Ukraine is saying that Russia has launched a full-scale invasion Ukrainian officials have said that there have been missile strikes in Kiev, Russia, in uh, Kiev, Ukraine, and Russian Defense Ministry is saying the exact opposite. They're saying that uh, they're not attacking cities. We'll see what happens. Uh, we are going to keep monitoring that situation and bring you any updates as it unfolds. Now, um, I will take your calls in just a moment, 800-848-9222, open lines, if you want to jump on board to either comment on my discussion with Victor Glover or uh, anything else that uh, that we've covered thus far. 
It was interesting to me uh, yesterday as I was driving home, I was uh, on the phone with a uh, a very noteworthy former talk show host whose name comes up on this uh, radio station from time to time on this program specifically. And I'm driving. I'm on the BQE yesterday. And we're actually talking about the Russia-Ukraine situation and the the interesting coverage that the media has had of it. And I'm driving, and all of a sudden, and now I, I don't know what's going on um, in terms of the streets and the roads in New York. I don't know if it's the weather, the snow, the ice that we've been getting, but I have never seen more potholes, more uh, more rough roads to drive on. So there were so many times over the course of the last few days where I almost cringed as my car is doing like a, a rehearsal for the demolition derby. I feel like I'm on a roller coaster. And lo and behold, nothing happened. I would uh, I would get out, look at my tires. Tires were all fine. And I'm on the phone with this person, and it's about uh, 6 o'clock in the morning. It's misting. Not quite raining, but it's misting. It's wet, wet out. And maybe it's the moisture and the the, the water. The, the, it wasn't, again, it wasn't quite raining. It was drizzling. It, maybe it was the water filling these various potholes, and maybe I missed one. But I hear a grumbling. I hear a grumbling. Sure enough, I say to this person, you know, I think I have a flat tire. So I pull over on 86th Street in Brooklyn. It's still dark. It's still dark. It's uh, at this point maybe about a quarter to six. It's about six o'clock in the morning, I'll say. And my trunk is filled with clutter, filled with clutter. But what am I going to do? Call AAA and wait for AAA. There are so few things I actually know how to do with a car. Changing a tire happens to be one most of the time. So I I said, all right, let me clear all the junk out of my trunk. Let me get this donut out. Let me take this existing tire off. And, you know, I'm not sure the last time you've changed a tire, but those bolts are on that tire pretty, pretty snugly. And I I couldn't even rotate the, uh, you know, the, the, the whatever, the lug wrench, whatever. So I actually at one point, started stepping on it to get the 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 uh, bolts on the tire to come out. So eventually I got filthy, but I was able to change the tire and um, drive home. And then, you know, go throughout the course of my day. I had sort of a busy day yesterday, so I didn't get to take it to the tire shop to have my tire replaced. And I didn't really want to drive in with this donut because the streets are just horrible. And what am I going to do if I screw up another tire? So I didn't want to risk it. So I asked my wife, who's just wonderful. I asked her, do you mind if I take your car in? She's got a beautiful, nice, new sport utility vehicle and drives really nice. And she says, sure, you can take my car in. Just uh, do me a favor. Don't get any tires. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't get any accidents. Don't do that thing where you drive home while you're asleep. Don't do any of that. So, um, great. So I'm driving it, and I get to work a few hours ago, and I see, and I got here maybe around 11 o'clock, I see right in front of our building in the area where I usually uh, park, I see it says no parking on Thursday. So now 
It's 11 o'clock, and it's Wednesday still when I get there. So I, I park. But I'm wondering, am I going to be okay there until 5 o'clock in the morning? My gut tells me I am, but Frank's Law says that my wife specifically warned me, don't do anything to get screw my car up. I'm wondering if maybe that was unwise to park there. I have to think I'm okay until 5. I mean, I don't know if they're doing it for an event that we're doing because we're celebrating Black History Month here at the radio station today. Maybe we're doing a press conference out there Thursday morning and they don't want cars out there. Maybe that's for us or maybe there's something else going on. But I, I played the I played the uh, towing company roulette in uh, parking there. So I'm hoping that that's okay. We'll see. If you uh, if you have any information on that, you can email. Well, I guess we'll we'll see where we are in three hours anyway. But you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Matt, did you notice those signs at all in front of the building that say no parking? Uh, yes, I did. And what did you do? Did you park there anyway? I did not. Oh, you didn't? <laughs> no. Oh, geez. Right. I parked. I actually parked one block up, and there was no signs. But I did the same thing. I pulled in and looked and, and parked in the spot and then went, oh, my God, I'm not supposed to park. Well, I'm looking at my car now outside. It still looks pretty – I mean, it doesn't look like anything bad is happening. And my first thought was, oh, this is the reason why I can get a spot. Right. There's these signs. Yeah. Usually it says no parking 6 a.m. to yeah, 5 p.m. Yeah, it says no parking with a, a yeah. big orange sign. No yeah. parking Thursday is what it says. Well, look, fortunately we can see the street from our window. Um, yeah. Keep an eye on that if you will. I'll keep looking. If the police come, I don't know. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll have uh, – we'll, we'll, we'll do a live broadcast. I'll run out and negotiate with the police officer. All right. Uh, I'll give you the latest on Russia along with my take on the Russian situation. Until next hour, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, some breaking news that we are monitoring all morning long. It's a story that I've been monitoring for literally the last year and a half. Russia has launched military action into Ukraine. The scope of this military action is in dispute, but there are explosions that are ha- are being heard in the Ukrainian capital city of Kiev. Uh, I have to say this is just awful. And it's something that I did not predict. In fact, if you listen to Monday's show, the very beginning of the show, I said precisely the exact opposite of what what, what has occurred here. So I was absolutely wrong. I do stand by my previous skepticism and criticism of the U.S. government's policy when it comes to Russia and the rhetoric on the part of the government, especially people like President Biden former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, current Secretary of State Tony Blinken, and others. And the media, and this is not a right-wing or left-wing thing, this is a mainstream media versus the alternative media thing, as, as well as the media's unabashed, unbridled enthusiasm for war. I stand by every single criticism. But I don't want to sugarcoat this. Uh, from my perspective, 
This is insane aggression from Vladimir Putin, and it should be condemned as a crime and a tragedy. And I'm certainly doing so. And I'm somebody that uh, tries to understand the Russian perspective, and I try to look at it. But what Putin is doing right now seemed completely not only irrational, but unthinkable to me until this moment. And it is it makes absolutely no sense. It's completely irrational from his standpoint and not to mention it's criminal based on international agreements that Russia herself signed on to dating back to 1994. Additionally, and I want to say this to the people that are very, very into politics, that love Donald Trump, that hate Donald Trump, that love Joe Biden, that hate Joe Biden. This is a horrible event that could very well result in a lot of people losing their lives, losing their homes, uh, getting injured. It's dangerous, and it is unfolding rapidly. It could, things could change at any moment. Turning this event into a cheap, partisan, political football is not helpful to anybody. It's not helpful for the Ukrainians, either eastern Ukraine or western Ukraine. It's not helpful for Americans, and it's not helpful for your political party or your political cause, whatever happened, whatever party or whatever ideology that happens to be. To be honest, I find it kind of obnoxious. I was listening uh, to both Rita and Dominic's show, and there was a lot of very thoughtful callers, but there were some people saying, oh, this shows this is all Donald Trump's fault. Oh, this shows this is all Joe Biden's fault. And I, I, all I could think of, people are losing their lives, potentially. And your first reaction is to try and score cheap political points. So I don't care if you can't stand Biden or if you can't stand Trump. Demonizing the other guy should not be your immediate instinct here. That being said, I think we do need to look at the 30 years of American foreign policy that have contributed to this moment. This is, in many respects, blowback for American provocation. And look, when we're on the verge of uh, a very serious military escalation here, I don't like to be in what they used to call the blame America first crowd, But America deserves some blame here. When the Iron Curtain fell and the Soviet Union crumbled, there were assurances made by the West, namely President Bush, Secretary Baker, that they would not expand NATO into Eastern Europe. That is a that we have completely failed to live up to that promise and that guarantee, assuming it was made. There are some revisionist historians that claim that guarantee was never made. Additionally, back we backed a coup in Ukraine. We partnered with not only domestic protesters, but some pretty bad hombres in Ukraine to overthrow a democratically elected president in Ukraine in 2014. Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, The election that put Yanukovych into power was monitored by international authorities. It it was not at at all a rigged election based on what international observers said. And yet we still conspired 
for a coup d'etat that threw out the democratically elected government. But it got so much worse in terms of America's conduct in Eastern Europe and Ukraine. We then, so we backed a coup, a coup in Ukraine. We then sent weapons to the Ukrainian government so they could use them on people they claim are their own citizens, the ethnic Russians in the Donbass region. And we expanded NATO this whole time right up to Russia's borders. And look, what Putin is doing is wrong, and I condemn it unequivocally. But didn't you think there were going to be some pretty serious consequences? You participate in a coup of a democratically elected government. You give lethal aid in the form of weapons to a government's military so that they can fight the Russians. And you had to think there were going to be some consequences. I'm I'm reminded, and again, I'm sorry to always go to cinema, but I'm reminded of a scene in uh, Kill Bill Volume 2. I don't know if you've seen it. It's a Quentin Tarantino film. It's a fine film. And essentially, Uma Thurman and David Carradine are having a uh, a clearing of the air. And David Carradine, uh, you know, Uma Thurman is basically demanding an explanation for why David Carradine's character has tried to, ha- tried to have her killed. And basically, David Carradine said, look, I'm a killer. I'm a trained assassin. Was my reaction really that surprising? And I've been thinking of that scene all night. Um, So you had a situation where the United States backed a coup in Ukraine. We sent weapons to the Ukrainian military to fight the expanded NATO right up to Russia's border. Remember this lesson. The next time whoever's in charge in Washington tells you they want to do the same thing, in, pla- in, a, in a place like Southeast Asia or South America or whatever the next cause for American intervention is. Russia does not want NATO at its borders. And look, I spoke with George Beebe yesterday and we got into a little bit of the motivation for this here. Uh, we got into why Russia was going forward with this. And he, I think, provided an interesting insight into Putin's thinking. And George Beebe is uh, not a Russian propagandist by any means. He was an advisor to uh, Dick Cheney. He was a senior diplomat. He runs a think tank. He's very well respected on both sides of the aisle and both sides of the Atlantic Ocean. This was George Beebe yesterday. The Russians fear invasion. Um, now, we look at that and we think that's ridiculous. You know, we have no intention of invading. Um, but uh, the Russians are a country that, that lacks uh, natural geographic defenses against invasion. It's like a giant plane. Um, it, there's not mountain ranges uh, separating its territory from, from other potential invaders. It doesn't have two giant oceans like we do that are natural protection against invasion. And they've experienced invasion repeatedly over the the centuries. Their solution to this is to put as much geographic distance as they can between the heartland of Russia and potential invaders. Um, And, you know, this has been effective for them as uh, as Hitler and Napoleon experienced. Um, So, 
Ukraine is central to all of this. It's central to their culture and history. It's also central to their sense of vulnerability to outside invasion. We've also seen multiple American presidents in both parties do whatever they can to publicly, forgetting about what we've done policy-wise to Russia, we have time and again publicly embarrassed Russia, and specifically Vladimir Putin. Now, I can't count the number of times that John McCain, a Republican and former presidential nominee of that party, and Joe Biden, the current president, have publicly called Vladimir Putin a thug, a bully, and a killer. Now, I've said this repeatedly over the course of the last eight years. When you call the president of the country that has the second largest stockpile of nuclear weapons in the whole world, when you publicly call them a thug and a bully, what do you think that's going to do to diplomatic relations? Do you think that's going to, A, improve diplomatic relations or, B, worsen? diplomatic relations. And President Biden has continued this Putin thug rhetoric continually. And that is one of the many things the United States has done. Uh, The kicking Russia out of the G8, the publicly lambasting uh, Germany for wanting to buy energy from Russia, the uh, refusal to engage in serious detente with Russia. The uh, Russia gate hysteria from many aspects of the American media. The United States has driven Russia into the arms of China. And in part, that newfound coziness with China is going to make American sanctions far less effective than they otherwise would be. I spoke about America's role. In driving Russia towards China with George Beebe yesterday. Uh, To some degree, the relationship between Russia and China would have uh, gotten cozier regardless of what the United States did. But I think we have artificially accelerated the pace of uh, uh, improved relations between uh, Russia and China on the one hand. And secondly, we've done it in a way that has encouraged them to work against us work against American interests. So the nature of that cooperation has become anti-American. And he's exactly right. The thing that you have to understand with Ukraine, though, is that Ukraine, as its borders are currently constituted, and this is why I'm still holding out some hope that we won't see a, a Russian attempt to take over the whole country, of Ukraine, and it'll be limited to the Donbass region and maybe uh, southern Ukraine, Odessa and southern Ukraine, and the uh, the areas that stop at the Napier River, which is historically the border of Eastern and Western civilization. The thing that you need to understand is Ukraine, as it looks now, is really an artificially created hodgepodge of territories. The uh, half the country almost is ethnic Russian and they embrace Russian culture, the Russian Orthodox Church, Russian history. And in many respects, they view Russia as more of their home than they do Ukraine. 
the current president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, when he was elected, he didn't even speak Ukrainian. He grew up speaking Russian. And then, you know, after being elected, he had to take a couple of months of lessons of Ukrainian. And now he's fluent in that language. But it gives you an idea of how ingrained and embedded Russian cultural mores are into Ukrainian society. So just because Ukraine's borders are what they are now, there's not necessarily a whole lot of historic rationale for why they should look that way. Now, and I don't think that gives a justification to a country to, um, you know, to go in and say, oh, you know, we're taking a big piece of this. But the thing that you need to understand is that um, NATO has done similar things. As I spoke about with George Beebe, the war in Yugoslavia, the United States went in and we decided to take it upon ourselves to liberate Kosovo, not because of anything that Yugoslavia was doing outside of its borders, but because we said, and not not we said they were, they were slaughtering ethnic Albanians. So even though there was no U.N. approval, even though there was no international seal of approval to do this, we went in and we did what Putin is doing now. We recognized a country, Kosovo, within another country's borders. So is it really so crazy to think that Putin has a legitimate concern for us doing the same thing with a place like Chechnya? So I spoke with George Beebe yesterday about what he thinks of Vladimir Putin's plans for Ukraine are. I do think it's likely that he's going to go at least uh, to the outskirts of Kiev. I I expect Russian forces are going to proceed to the Dnieper River, um, possibly taking Odessa uh, on the coast, the southern coast of Ukraine, and uh, potentially um, capturing all of uh, Ukraine's southern coastline. I don't expect that he will uh, move forces all the way to the west to take the entirety of Ukrainian territory. Um, that would be very difficult for the Russian military to pull off. Uh, he would be faced with partisan warfare. It would be quite bloody. It would be uh, difficult to hold territory in the west if he were to conquer it. The other thing you have to keep in mind is that these ethnic Russians in Donetsk and Lugansk have been at war with the Ukrainian government for eight years. So that aspect of this conflict is not new. Russia being so brazen and so overt in terms of uh, sending the military in to protect those ethnic Russians from the Ukrainian military, that is new. But the other thing that I want you to understand is that Ukraine is not an American ally. Ukraine is not a democracy. Ukraine is not a member of NATO that we are bound by treaty to defend. At all. Sanctions, which the President of the United States, Joe Biden, announced two days ago, I think are going to be incredibly ineffective at curtailing Russian aggression, because in many respects, they've made themselves sanction-proof by 
paying off a lot of their debt, doesn't that sound nice, and by moving more towards the Chinese economy. Now, it will have an effect, but it's also going to have an effect on the American economy. And, uh, I, you know, I'm, he- I'm really nervous, quite frankly, about what Russia is going to do in retaliation for these sanctions. So I see these being completely ineffective at curtailing Russian behavior, but potentially very effective at worsening things like inflation and the economic condition in the United States on everything from gasoline to prescription drugs. Lethal aid, I found that an idiotic strategy of of the last three presidents who've done that. Uh, It's effective at angering Russia. I don't see that being effective at all in terms of getting Russia not to cross the border into Ukraine. Clearly, it didn't work. So what are we doing? The most important thing from my perspective right now, and we're going to talk to Bob Wolf in a few minutes and uh, focus on some other things as well, but the most important thing right now is for the United States to avoid conflict, avoid further conflict with Russia. There is a division of U.S. soldiers in Poland, and Rita Cosby referenced this earlier because she's of Polish Polish descent. There is a division of U.S. soldiers in Poland right now, four miles from the Ukrainian border. Four miles, not 400 miles, four miles. That's a long walk. The risk of some incident that leads to escalation with the U.S. and NATO has risen dramatically in the last 24 hours. We Congress is not really providing much in the way of leadership, although there was an interesting bipartisan um, initiative that I was uh, really interested to see. Forty three House members demanding Democrat and Republican people like Matt Gates uh, signing on with some very, uh, very partisan Democrats like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez demanding that Joe Biden seek congressional approval before sending any U.S. troops into Ukraine, something I am all for, and I hope he heeds the words of those 43 Democrats and Republicans. But um, we're now left to hope that President Biden exercises the cautions necessary to avoid an even bigger catastrophe. So my hope is that we're able to do that somehow, maybe in a way that allows both sides to save face and minimizes the loss of life. Uh, I mean, I heard, I read a column in the uh, American Conservative by Colonel Douglas McGregor, who I just emailed and invited on the show either you know today or tomorrow or one day next week to to analyze this. But he said we should make that Napier River uh, in in Ukraine a line in the sand and make clear to the Russians that if they cross that Napier River, then all bets are off and that the United States and their allies will respond. The other thing, that's sort of the stick, the carrot, would be that the United States and their allies agree to conditions of neutrality for Ukraine as it's currently configured. Basically, Ukraine becomes an Eastern European version of Switzerland. No NATO, no um, American military troops there, no American military weaponry, and uh, look, Maybe that's the kind of compromise that people can live with. So as I see it, and I'm going to squeeze in a couple of your calls before we get to Bob Wolf. As I see it, the United States and NATO are forced to essentially choose between two options. A, we can escalate aggressions against Russia 
to literally world-threatening levels, or B, we can do what people like me, Glenn Greenwald, Tucker Carlson, Pat Buchanan, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, and others, Michael Averco on this program, have been urging them to do for years and pursue serious detente. Needless to say, I vote for option B. 800-848-WABC. Bob Wolf, who uh, you may remember, you know, Bob, I remember coming on the show all the time, and I feel like he's been a regular on this show, but it looks like he hasn't been on the show in, in in close to a year which I found hard to believe. But he's a guy with one of the best voices in radio. He's going to join me in just a moment. But when it comes to Ukraine, I, again, to use another cinematic analogy, I'm reminded of when the sheriff comes into town in uh, blazing saddles. And it's clear when this black sheriff comes into this racist town and these guys uh, start pulling their guns out on him, the preacher is all ready to defend him. And he's warning, Play, hey, you, you can't do that. You can't do that. Well, once they start shooting at his Bible, he changes his tune. I hereby assume the duties of the office of sheriff in and for the township of Rockridge. Gentlemen, gentlemen, let us not allow anger to rule the day. As your spiritual leader, I implore you to pay heed to this good book and what it has to say. <laughs> Son, you're on your own. Son, you're on your own. At some point, this has got to be worked out between Ukraine and their neighbor Russia and not the United States. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Eddie is in Ocean County. Hello, Eddie. Hello. And that is exactly what my question is. Why is everyone talking about this in terms of Ukraine, Russia, and America? Why are we the third partner in this whole, in this whole debacle? I'm saying why why we feel the need to even put sanctions more than, say, Australia or anything? Well, uh, for starters, I think and I, I agree with you, Eddie. Look, I, I think we should withdraw. Right. I'd love to see our government and our leaders be a little bit more concerned with the American border than the Ukrainian border. But part of the reason is because that's one of Putin's stated reasons as to why he's doing this. NATO um, flirting with Ukraine membership and going right up until their borders. 800-848-9222. Bobby's in East Chester. Hello, Bobby. Hey, Frank, this is Bobby Benton. Um, I'm named after the Sure, singer, I remember. But, um, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, Vladimir Putin. I really think he should just back off because I don't think he's going to win, you know, or be able to do do anything when Joe Biden has a plan, and he's planning to move in on them. So I think it's just going to be more of a problem if he keeps it up. I don't think he's going to be able to go too much further. So I think he should make a decision to just back off. Well, look, I don't see him backing out of the Donbass region. I would hope uh, that uh, when it comes to Western Ukraine, he does heed your wisdom. But, uh, you know, I don't know that he's listening to Frank and uh, Bobby Vinton. Right. Maybe unless he's listening to a Bobby Vinton record. Uh, I don't know that he's listening to us. But I will say, you know, Putin's new buddy, China, they're not happy about this either because China is pursuing this Belt and Road Initiative and they want to go all the way to Eastern Europe through through Ukraine with that Belt and Road Initiative. And this is a huge stumbling block. 
in some respects in terms of getting Eastern European cooperation. 800-848-9222, Tom's in Suffolk County. Hello, Tom. Yeah, first of all, Frank, thank you. Thank you for everything you're saying. I'm a purebred Ukrainian. Unlike the pe- most of the people in Ukraine now are mutts. But, uh, yeah, look, I'm kind of mad at uh, Mr. Katsimatidis. He's a great guy. He's did a ter- terrific job in the station, but he's got so many Nazi sympathizers on his, uh, on his uh, program, I mean, his station. And half of them seem to be Jewish, actually, like, uh, like what's his name, Mark Levin and the other ones. All of them, uh, they hate the U- Eastern Ukrainians, who, by the way, were the people that liberated Auschwitz and most of the death camps. Tom, uh, you can Jews. certainly agree, disagree with Mark Levin or anybody else on the station, but um, they're not Nazi sympathizers. And uh, John Katsimatidis provides a forum for all views to be heard on foreign policy and every other policy, including mine. And I'm really grateful for that. So um, I uh, completely disagree with your characterization of that. Let me squeeze in one more call here before Bob Wolf joins us. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. Three things. Number one, I got to hand it to you. You really got hooked but to take your wife's car after all the instructions she gave you <laughs> and purposely park it in the parking zone. But the only right. saving grace for me is that uh, I'm hoping she's asleep right now. Right now. I, I, I can't stop laughing, Frank. The other thing is about uh, the prescription drugs. You know, my doctor called in a prescription for me, uh, the Walgreens. I saw it online. It said fifty nine ninety nine, uh, but we got to put it through insurance. And after they put it through insurance, it costs $2.31. So if you don't have insurance, you're really shafted when it comes to these drugs. And the third thing about Ukraine is I took an oath once to defend the country uh, when I joined the service. I didn't take an oath as a civilian to to be uh, uh, to be uh, how do I say it? Uh, I'm at I'm at a loss for words, Frank. Uh, I, I didn't take an oath to, to, for the pain that's going to be following. By the uh, sure, yeah, you didn't take the right. You didn't take an oath uh, to pl- pay a dollar more per gallon in gas or anything like that. As a, as a result, it's going to be a dollar, Frank. Gas to go up to ten, fifteen dollars. You'll see. Well, we'll, we have no oil. We will see what happens, Neil. Thank you. Bob Wolf is here. It is um, it is the eve of the hour of the wolf. That's right. Bob Wolf is here. He's going to tell you some of the skills that uh, children in schools are not learning and. How that hurts the generation of adults that is entering the workforce these days. It's a conversation that is more relevant than ever, given the fact that children are actually back in schools and they might even be unmasked sometime soon. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. of midnight i'm frank moreno uh we are going to be monitoring the situation in eastern europe with russia and ukraine as it stands now 
Russia is claiming that they've disabled Ukraine's air defenses. Uh, We're also going to be keeping you up to date on all of the events today that our radio station is doing commemorating Black History Month, in addition to uh, my discussion with a real pioneer and a real hero, in my judgment, Victor Glover, the uh, uh, the astronaut, in the first hour, uh, John Katsimatidis, our owner, is going to kick things off officially on the Bernie and Sid show once that show starts at 6. But for now, I'm very, very excited because we have been rejoined by the wolf. That's right. It must be a full moon because Bob Wolf has emerged. Bob Wolf is a wonderful guy with one of the finest voices in all of radio. He is um, he almost defies description, but he could be described by some as a college and career skills readiness trainer with something called hope skills, which we're going to get into in just a bit. Bob, it's great to see you again. Well, it's nice to hear you make such complimentary comments about a wolf from Long Island. Right. It's great to see you as well. And your facility is a very different facility than I was in the last time. That's right. Uh, you, you it was t- a closet the last time. Th- that's, we've come a long way in the course of, uh, of a year. You've grown. You are a wolf in Bob's clothing. Now, I think the last time that we spoke, it was last winter, and you were on your way here. And from what I remember, did you get a flat tire on your way here the last time or something? Um, I had a problem with the vehicle I was driving, yes. I and, see. Um, the apparatus in the car that said technology was working wasn't working. <laughs> um, so when technology works, it's fine. When technology doesn't work, it's not so fine. I had a flat tire but, driving back yesterday, so I can empathize completely. I know what that's like. Yeah. Did you end up parking in the area where it says no parking Thursday? Uh, I did what you said you to did. do. You did? Okay, good. But I'm, but I'm a reader of signs, and when <laughs> I don't want to be going to a police station and... and Maybe we'll go to we'll go together, right? They'll get a two for one deal. Now, well, as long as the bill is paid for by someone other than me, it's fine. <laughs> All right, um, we have seen the last two years in schools, uh, not just in the Northeast, but really around the country, be very much a culture shock for parents, for teachers, for students, especially for administrators. In your view, uh, not only in terms of the educational cost, but the uh, cultural, sociological costs. How damaging have the last two years been for students and everybody else that I just mentioned? Well, they've been very damaging for lots of different reasons, but one of the problems that the kids have had is the fact that technology is putting out more products every day requiring use of a screen. And the kids today are looking at more screens. For example, there was a survey done for 12- and 13-year-olds about a year and a half ago where they looked at the uh, non-school time, screen time, for 5,400 12 to 13-year-olds. And in 2020, it was 7.4 hours a day. Wow. So 7.4 hours looking at a screen, not as part of school. Non-school. Then they looked at 2017, and they said, well, what what was that same group of kids doing in 2017? It was 3.8 hours. So we have doubled the amount of screen time. These kids are spending. Now you add in the fact that it's three to four hours a day in school when they look at screens in the classroom, whether it's on their phone or a tablet or whatever. And you've got almost half the waking hours of these kids looking at a screen. The damage that it's done to them emotionally, psychologically, intellectually, uh, socially is incredibly difficult to even quantify. 
Now, of course, academia, academia is all about quantification. If we, if we can't measure it, we don't test it. So the skills that these kids are suffering in called social emotional skills or soft skills, and whoever decided to call them soft needs to be looked at carefully. So tell folks, you know, I love the emphasis that you place on the so-called soft skills because right. there are so few politicians, educators, administrators, education advocates, children advocates that make championing these skills uh, their emphasis. And yet that is so often what employers are looking for. What is it exactly that you do and how did you get into this area of, uh, say, hardening people's ability when it comes to the so-called soft skills? I got into it 21 years ago working out at a gym working with young guys who had gone to college, graduated from college, couldn't find a job, didn't know how to prepare themselves for an interview, didn't know how to interview, didn't know how to write a thank you note to someone who helped them out. Uh, I took common sense and just said to myself, maybe there's a way to help some kids learn certain skills that they're not being taught in school. So I started I started HOPE, the Students Bridge to Business, and I applied for a trademark on HOPE, Help Other People Excel for Education, Training, and Motivation, and got it. And uh, like Nathan Hale says, I am but one man that's trying to do something. I'd like to form an army because right now we've got kids out there using a term called soft skills and educators using it, but having had no chance to understand how to measure it. So what are these these so-called soft skills? Um, well, I define them in five different categories. Initially, let's look at it this way, Frank. There are five skills we all need to have in life to do anything. One is academic skills, and everybody has them in one form or another and can get them in one form or another. The second is technology skills, and we've got them coming out of boatloads and screens and in tablets and in phones, etc. The third is set of skills is experiential skills. What have we done in our life? What have we done in part-time jobs or what have we done at home? What kind of hobbies do we have? So we have academia, technology, experiential then we have um, financial capital skills. Where do we get our money from? How do, we, do we work for it? Do we borrow it? Uh, do we get loans? And the last set of skills that I looked at as probably the number one skill set is people. You see, I look at it this way. We have those five skills, but I call them resources. We all have resources to draw upon in life to become effective. And those are the five resources. And then I thought to myself, what is the one resource that we all have in every job we have to deal with, we have to meet, we have to earn support from, we have to work effectively with. And that's people. That's the only resource that's the same. Technology, oh, it's got different formats. Uh, not everybody's got the same academic background, but everybody today must be involved in meeting, earning support from people. So my skill set was built around the fact that if you don't know enough good people in this world, you can't be effective. I'm here because of people who I've known for a long time, saying something about me to somebody else who said something to somebody else who said something to you probably six or seven years ago. And, you and, know, um, the, I, that is true. I, you I, you first came to my attention. You were referred by uh, Gary Krupp, right. who I know through John Katsimatidis, our owner. Right. And this was long before he was our owner. And right. uh, we we've, uh, were able to develop a relationship that way. And I can't tell you how many relationships I have that were all a byproduct of some version of that, of what I just described. Well, uh, I, I put together some theories and concepts. And one of the things that I like to tell kids 
and adults is you can't know enough good people and you never know who they are and when you're going to meet them. So you need these basic skills that I've put together. I call them HICA skills. I try to come up with a clever name, and HICA is a clever acronym that people – what's a HICA skill? H-I-K-A. H-I-K-A. Uh, human interaction, knowledge applied skills. And these are the kind of skills that we use every single day of our life when we meet and deal with people. Human interaction is part of what we do every day, unless we live in a closet and we don't have a job where we ever have to see people. And there are some people, I guess, who have those kind of jobs, but that's not real. Then the knowledge that we have, and we've accumulated that knowledge over our lifetime, we have to apply it. So what skills do you need to do that? Well, there's five of them, and they build on each other, and they're basic. They can be taught to any student. Any student can learn them. Uh, Any student can um, practice them because all it takes to learn a skill is practice and training, any kind of skill. So let's look at them well and really quickly. First first impression skills. We make a first impression with people every single day. I walked in here and saw the young man outside with his his crutch and his foot in in, in a cast. And I was going to ask him a question. He was going to say, he said, he said don't ask me. I've been asked too many times. <laughs> so we, I made a first impression. I said, no, I promise you I will not ask you. So first impression skills are skills that we use every day. We smile. We look at people. We say good morning. We say hello. That's the introductory skill set that says to somebody, hmm, I'd like to learn a little bit more about that person. So the first is interpersonal skills, is first impression skills. Then we have interpersonal skills. And people said to me, but Bob, all of your skills are interpersonal skills except that there's certain ones that are very, very critically important and basic. One is common courtesy, common sense, politeness. Right. Those skills are more interpersonal than, say, juggling, right? Uh, well, extremely so, but, but people have a hard time saying to me, but Bob, but, but everything you do is interpersonal. Well, I also use acronyms. and My acronym for the word KISS is keep it simple and specific. So when I started to work with these kids in the gym, I said, Okay, your interpersonal skills are common courtesy, common sense, being polite, not being rude, being respectful. Um, and they said, oh, I see. So that's the second set. After that, you go from first impression, interpersonal. Then you go to communication skills. And there's five ways we communicate, Frank. We communicate speaking, listening, writing, physical, and emotional. And they look at me and they said, really? That's, of course, there's five ways you communicate. I don't have to say a word to you, but if I write something to you mm-hmm. and I write a thank you note to you, which I've done many, many times, you might say, if you've never met me, who is this guy that just sent me a note? As a matter of fact, my cardiologist, his uh, woman who does his uh, uh, office management, got a note from me about two weeks ago because she did me a favor. And when I called her up, she said to me, Bob, why did you send me that note? I said, because you did something to help me. So I, communication is such a multifaceted skill set. You can't just put it into one lump sum. So after you go from communication skills, then you go, well, what do you do? Why do you make a first impression? Why do you have interpersonal skills? Why do you communicate? Then you look at presentation skills. And what are you presenting every single day? What are you presenting yourself every single day? Who you are, what mm-hmm. you do, what you believe in, your, 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 your theories of understanding, the way you treat people. So after I got those four skills, I said to myself, well, why do we really have those four skills? What, what, why do we matter if we make a good first impression? Why does it matter if we have good interpersonal skills? Why does it matter if we know how to communicate? Why does it matter if I can present myself with a nice, yes, and thank you for the compliment on my voice. I do appreciate it, but I recognize the fact that 
we all have a unique voice. And if you know that, that product called Smucker's Jam many, many years ago, Smucker's Jam was an unusual product, and they had a guy that did voiceover work for him because the voiceover guy couldn't get a job by anybody. They wouldn't ever hire him because he was like, Smucker's Jam is the jam. <laughs> you can't believe it. The guy that owned Smucker's said, you know what? I want your voice with my product because it sounds like my product should look. Is we all have a unique voice. The question is, how do you use it? And why do you use those four skills in the first place? The last skill that's necessary is selling skills. So in school, and I want to delve into maybe how some of these lessons that you've tried to impart to students can be applied to adults as well. But in school, over the last decade especially, there has been a tremendous emphasis as we want our students to compete in the international marketplace on STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math. In your view, given what it sounds like was uh, paying not enough attention to uh, skills like communication and interpersonal skills, has the emphasis on STEM education by policymakers and educators alike, has that emphasis been misplaced? I'm not sure it's been misplaced. I think it's misunderstood into thinking that if you don't take one of those core curriculum mandated courses, um, you're not going to be a successful person. I don't know whether you're aware of it or not, but the trades today are growing dramatically. Academia has no interest in discussing trades. Uh, you know, it's so funny that you say that. My wife, uh, we just had a, a baby three months ago. And ah, she, congratulations. She, thank you. She asked me the other day, you know, if Carmine ends up becoming a plumber, <laughs> how would you feel about that? I said, are you kidding? I think that would be great. And I proceeded to mention that same thing about how uh, in demand uh, plumbers, electricians, carpenters, tradespeople are now. And I would I would say if he's left with a choice of a career as a plumber or a radio talk show host, I know which one is much more likely to give him an opportunity to pay his bills. I find it very difficult, and I had a really difficult time when I started this program, getting anyone in education to even allow me to use the word trade and apprenticeships. The fact of the matter is um, you're an educated person when you're a successful plumber, metal worker, woodworker, uh, carpenter. But you need the five skills I just talked about because you need customers right. and you need referrals. And you need to be able to earn a living by having a reputation that people say, wow, you got to get a hold of Bob Wolf. He is one dependable person. But if people are just tuning in, we are talking with Bob Wolf. He's the founder of Hope. You can learn more about Hope, H-O-P-E, at hopeskills.com. That's Hope skills.com. Bob, getting back to the education situation, Mm -hmm. how badly has remote learning over the course of the last year and a half or so hindered children's development of interpersonal skills? Well, uh, it's a great question. uh, And I've done several presentations over the last two years uh, virtually. I've been Zooming. uh, And uh, one thing about a presentation If you look at communication as numbers, 10% of effective communication is words, 30% is sounds, and 60% is body language. So if I'm giving a Zoom presentation and the people on the other end of the presentation don't have their cameras on and I can't see them. You don't know if they're fidgeting. I I know they're not paying attention because Mm -hmm. they're kids. And if I was a kid at that age, I wouldn't be paying attention either. The fact of the matter is that um, 
you have to get. I gave a my I gave two presentations in November. One to uh, Malloy College student athletes in person, and the other to Adelphi student athletes virtually. And the kids from virtual presentations said, "Wow, you don't present like everybody else." You see, I believe you've got to present the same way. I have to see the same energy level, the same enthusiasm level, the same content level. And my body language, I, I'm sitting here now in a chair and I'm moving around. People that, can't, that are on the radio can't see that. But that's how you have to be when you make a virtual presentation. The problem today with kids is they're looking at the screens and they look at all their technology and they're not communicating in those manners at all. In your view, it is very possible to balance STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math with the interpersonal skills that oh, you emphasize? It's not possible. It's essential. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, uh, when, when you consider the fact that three of the four, three, today three out of four employers say they can't find graduates with enough soft skills to hire. That's no matter what they're looking to do to earn a living, what kind of jobs they're going to have. And the reality is whether you're in science, technology, engineering, and math, don't you have to interact with people every single day? Uh, that's for sure. Have we seen, because of increased screen time, because of no emphasis on the kind of skills that you impart in school and in wherever you, wherever else you impart them, have we seen a, a generation of people entering adulthood and the workforce that's unprepared with the kind of skills that you're emphasizing? Terribly. As a matter of fact, I'll give you a quick story. A very dear friend of ours just left the position as a high executive of the bank. And before she left, she was interviewing a young woman from a very, very well-known school. Great credentials, great marks. And she walked into the interview and very attractive, dressed very well, sat down and uh, had the conversation for the interview. All of a sudden, my friend hears something. And the, the a applicant leans over and picks up a phone. Oh, boy. And takes the phone and says, no, no, excuse me. I, I can't talk to you right now. No, oh, no, boy. I'll get back to you. And she puts the phone down in her purse, about three seconds. So then she looks at my friend and says, okay, let's continue. So my friend looked at her very nicely, maintaining her cool. She said, continue, there's the door, continue your way out. Mm. And the applicant couldn't, she was incredulous. She said, what do you mean? She said, how dare you bring a phone on? And then you take the time to interrupt our interview by answering it and saying, as she said, you don't understand. So what's happened today with kids and young adults, because what they learn as a child and as a high school student and as a college student, it's a habit. A skill set that's effective in life is a habit. I want to encourage folks to check out the website, hopeskills.com. They can learn more about what Bob is doing. Give one or two, and we're very limited in time here, and I hope you'll come back. Give one or two pointers for people listening in our audience, adults, in terms of improving their own hope skills, their own HICA skills, their own interpersonal skills? Uh, the, the thing that I encourage adults, and I've talked to a lot of parents about this, is model the skills, model the behavior, model the way you want your children to act and behave. Uh, we have two sons, and I've got friends who've got kids. Uh, their kids know how to behave because mom and dad do. And unfortunately, I've got some friends who are teachers who've got young children. And they've said to me personally, Bob, I'm busy at home. I'm working from home now. When my kids are in my hair, I just give them a tablet. Mm. 
And when you give that kid a tablet, you're giving him permission to use it anytime, anywhere, any, in, 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 under any condition. So adults have to realize is they set the stage by modeling what they want their children to look and behave like. You do do some training for adults that uh, may need some help on in the interpersonal skills area. If people want to get in touch with you, maybe they're a principal or a teacher, they want you to come to their class, or if they're an adult and in need of some of the kind of training you offer, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you? They can drop me an email at bobwolf at hopeskills.com, or they can give me a phone call at my phone number, which is 516-639-5515. Bob Wolf at hopeskills.com. Don't take Bob's number down if you're going to give him a prank call. But for the rest of you, you can use his phone number with impunity. That's Bob Wolf without a knee at hopeskills.com. Bob, you got to come back soon. (laughs) Thank you, Frank. I'd be more than happy to do that. And good luck in your new place. Thank you. Thank you. If you want to comment on 800-848-WABC, that's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight, 77 WABC. I'll tell you, when the world seems like like it's on the brink of exploding, sometimes if you could spend 20 or 30, 40 seconds listening to uh, the musical stylings of a master like Frank Sinatra, uh, sometimes it just makes everything feel like uh, it should. Uh, Joe Piscopo, by the way, does a great show every Sunday evening, the Ramsey Mazda Sundays with Sinatra show. If you're a Sinatra fan and you're not listening to that show, you are missing out. If you're not in a position to listen on Sunday nights, uh, be sure to check out the podcast of that program on WABCRadio.com. While you're checking out the podcasts, I hope you'll subscribe uh, to my podcast, uh, not only of this program, The Other Side of Midnight, where I'm told uh, that um, we're in the top 5% of podcasts in the whole world, actually, and in the top 30, uh, at least last I looked, in the entertainment category on uh, iTunes. So we want to keep growing, and you can help us grow by subscribing to the podcast and by encouraging others to as well. So just search The Other Side of Midnight. But uh, we launched this new podcast. It's called The Racket Report. That's stuff that's not on the radio. And I uh, encourage you to subscribe to that too, wabcradio.com, or just search The Racket Report. I got a nice email who said that the, um, the most recent edition of The Racket Report is our best ever. Tom, Joseph, Mary, Beth, we will be able to take your calls in just a moment. And uh, we'll take your calls, too, at 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Keep asking questions. Won't you please arrange it? Because I love 
just the way you look tonight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank morano uh right now we are seeing all sorts of uh, video of images of um civilians ukrainian civilians fleeing the capital city kiev as um there are reports of russian missiles exploding all over ukraine right now there are conflicting reports from both ukraine and russia as to the extent of uh, the Ukrainian area that is being targeted. Ukraine has declared martial law in response to this Russian attack. President Putin has authorized military action in Ukraine. President Biden has indicated that uh, that he will be uh, making remarks in the next day or so and will be leveling more sanctions towards Russia. Personally, I don't think that's an effective strategy. I hope that I'm wrong. Uh, Certainly, I've been wrong before. And uh, we are going to continue to monitor the situation. President Zelensky is asking Ukrainian civilians to fight for their country, uh, to arm themselves and be prepared to propel, uh, to uh, repel any sort of a Russian incursion into residential areas and their other areas. Now, a couple of other items I want to get to before we talk to Harry Hurley. And I'm going to get Harry's take on this as well. Harry Hurley did a great job. Filling in for Brian Kilme. Those of you that are on hold, we'll get to you. Those of you that want to be heard from, you can call in 800-848-9222. It was very interesting. Eric Adams um, has done a lot of things well, I think, so far. Done some things not so well, but he's done a lot of things well. One of the things that he has done effectively as mayor of New York City, though, is he's brought back a spirit kind of like Ed Koch did or Rudy Giuliani. He's brought back a spirit of lightheartedness to a very serious job. Now, when you think about it, being mayor is a tough job to maintain a lightheartedness about, right? Because when a cop is shot, you're the first person that people expect to hear from. When there's a disaster, uh, whether it's a uh, a sinkhole that opens up or a snowstorm or uh, or a transit strike, you're the face of the city. You have to manage the city through all these crises. So when you're dealing with a, a basically every crisis is your responsibility, it's tough to do that oftentimes with a smile. But I got to give uh, Mayor Adams credit because he did just that yesterday on um, Good Morning, uh, on uh, Fox 5's uh, morning show, Good Day New York 
Now, Chris Red was a guest on Good Day New York. Are you familiar with Chris Red? Chris Red plays Eric Adams on Saturday Night Live. I haven't watched Saturday Night Live in some time. I had not seen the Chris Red impression of Eric Adams, but I have to say he's not that bad. Uh, to give you a sense of what Chris Red sounds like as Eric Adams, this is what he sounds like. Yeah, that's right. It's your homeboy, your hometown hero, Eric Adams. Do you feel that? Huh? Yeah, that's not bad. It's not bad. Okay. So then Chris Red is on Rosanna Scotto's show, Good Day New York, yesterday, and he gets interrupted by, of all people, Eric Adams. He gets interrupted doing an Eric Adams impression by Eric Adams. This is amazing. Absolutely. All right. Now I need you to switch gears. Can mm-hmm. I have a little Mayor Eric Adams? Uh, oh, this is amazing. Absolutely. See, the swagger oh, is it's, it's on a thousand right now. New York City. This is your mayor. Bing bong, Eric Adams. You understand? Listen, I, it's so it's so good to be here on good good day, New York. I understand? It's so good to be here. I haven't seen somebody this beautiful since I woke up this morning. You understand? Me? Oh, wait, is that Chris, the man right there? Yes, is that Chris, the man right there? Chris, I saw y'all sound checking him. I heard you sound checking him earlier. You, you, you thought you was gonna surprise me, but see, I'm too I'm too swaggy for all that. You know, Chris I, I, Red, I, I am too swaggy for it. Chris Red, it's all, the mayor heard you do your impersonation. Mayor, are you okay with Chris doing this? I love it, but he didn't have my smoothie, you know. Oh, you got the smoothie. I got the water. I got the water. (laughs) So the mayor interrupted him with a green smoothie, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. Uh, So he had a good sense of humor about it. I think that's the key. When you're a politician and you're being mocked by a comedian or something, I think you got to roll with the punches. And I think that's what politicians who have been effective at some of the same skills that Bob Wolf was talking about a minute ago, I think that's been one of their hallmarks, is they're able to laugh at themselves. They're able to laugh with the audience. Speaking of entertainment, the Oscars are slimming down this year. One of the great criticisms of the Academy Awards has been that the show is too long. And to combat slumping ratings, the Academy Awards are undergoing what they're referring to as a radical slimming down with eight awards to be presented off-air during next month's telecast of the Academy Awards. In a letter sent yesterday to members of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the group's president, David Rubin, said the awards for film editing, production design, sound, makeup, and hairstyling, music, original score, and the three short film awards, documentary, live-action, and animated, will be presented at the ceremony before the March 27th live broadcast uh, begins on uh, ABC. Now, instead of starting the ceremony and broadcast all at once, the Dolby Theater ceremony will begin an hour before the telecast does. The presentation and speeches of those early eight winners will be edited and featured during the three-hour live broadcast which Ruben emphasized would still provide each winner with their Oscar moment. Well, no, it doesn't. Is it an Oscar moment if almost no one's watching on live television as you thank uh, the Academy, your mama, and Elvis? 
Come on. I I think this is horrible. I want to see these uh these award categories. I want to see the winner of the three short film awards, documentary and live action and animated. It's not right. These people ought to be part of the same award ceremony, televised, just like everyone else's. If they have suggestion, if they want suggestions on how to trim that ceremony down, I've got a lot of suggestions. And it has nothing to do with taking these award categories away. If they do take these award categories away, which I hope they do not. Well, I mean, it's too late. David Rubin has spoken. If they take these award categories away, as appears likely, then they should at least do a live video stream of the entire ceremony so that um, people like me who are interested in seeing these awards and the winners and the contest and the look on the winners' faces and the look on the losers' faces and the witty things that the presenters might say, they should do a live stream so people like me could see them. That's my take. Um, comment as you see fit. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Lastly, in the entertainment front, Lindsay Lohan. I'm a fan of Lindsay Lohan. I, um, I've always liked her. I, and in, in fact, if you, I'm not going to tell you about it now. But if you want a Google, I mean, excuse me, if you want a giggle from a Google, get your minds out of the gutter, folks. If you want a giggle from a Google, Google my name and Lindsay Lohan. And you, some interesting articles come up from uh, about 14 years ago. Now, Lindsay Lohan joined TikTok earlier this month, and she has now gone viral for sharing how to actually pronounce her last name. This is Lindsay Lohan. Hey, everyone. It's Lindsay Lohan. And guess what? Now I'm on TikTok. She placed the emphasis on the first syllable of her last name, stressing the O instead of the A. Let's hear it again. Hey, everyone. It's Lindsay Lohan. And guess what? Now I'm on TikTok. Many fans realize they've been mispronouncing her name for years. Lindsay Lohan, one comment said, along with a confused emoji. Another ironically misspelled spelled Lohan's name. Lindsay Lohan? I've been saying it wrong my whole life. Now, you know, I don't just blame the people here, because I've always said it correctly as Lindsay Lohan. But I interviewed her father, Michael Lohan, about four years ago, three or four years ago. I've interviewed him a few times. He's an interesting guy sometimes. But um, he pronounces it as Lohan. So he doesn't say Lohan the way that she does. I've always said Lohan. But Michael Lohan says Lohan, from what I recall, because I asked him about this. All right. We're going to talk um, about uh, world affairs uh, locally, nationally, internationally with Harry Hurley coming up in a few minutes as part of the AC report. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Let me say hello to Mary Beth in Huntington. Hello, Mary Beth. Frank, how are you? I'm worried about your car, your wife's car. Be careful out there. So am I. And, and uh, believe me, if she's awake right now, she's worried too. Uh, I hope she calls in, Frank. Uh, I, 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 if she calls in, I, I'm in trouble. So uh, that means, one, our son is awake right now, which yeah. um, which is not a positive. And, and two, that means I'm in trouble for uh, for for throwing caution to the wind with my parking strategies. 
Well, I wish you the best. Um, Frank, I, I feel the two interviews that you did so far this morning, um, they complemented each other quite beautifully because is his name pronounced Mr. Glover? Yes, that's right. Um, here he has a remarkable background in science, and he was just so – his communication skills were wonderful. He re, You drew him out, and he drew the audience in. He was wonderful to listen to, and um, most of the time you think, oh, an astronaut – I, I'm not going to understand enough about his world, so I might have tuned out. He, he was he was remarkable. I just I wanted him to have more time on the show, and also your guest, Mr. Wolf. He he said so much about what is lacking in so many kids and young people's lives today. These skills are so so important, and they they need to be promoted more. Well, I, I certainly agree with you, and I, I really appreciate your your nice words. Uh, it really means a great deal, uh, Mary Beth. You know, you know, when there, whenever there's a breaking news incident like this, there's always so much. Um, you always wonder, oh, should I do all wall to wall Russia and Ukraine? My view is that no. I mean, uh, my view is you should tell people what's happening, give your take, invite them to comment, and then um, that people want to hear about other things as well. So I, I'm taking your phone call as vindication of that. And and you should, because already, I, and I don't mean to belittle or minimize what's going on over in Ukraine. I feel very sorry for anybody in a situation like that. But it's going to be 24-7 for how long? It's going to be replacing COVID as the, you know, subject of the day. So thank you for giving us other things to think about, but for informing us about, you know, current events, too. Well, thank you, Mary Beth. Uh, I hope you'll call again, and I really appreciate you listening. You're welcome. Good luck with the car. Thank you. Believe me, I am going to need it. 1-800-848-WABC. Ashley is in Valley Stream. Hello, Ashley. Hello. You should have had a can of Fixer Flat in your car. Okay. Um, well, I If will... you did, you wouldn't have to change a tire. Mm-hmm. I, you know, the the, I saw th- there was a pretty big gash in this tire. I'm not sure okay. Fixer Flat would have done the trick. Okay, okay. And please have one in your wife's car. Don't let her ride around without a Fixer Flat. That's a good, I've helped that's a good so idea. many people. That's a good idea, Ashley. I've, had so many, I've helped so many people with a Fixer Flat. That's a good road, idea, On Ashley. the highway, on the Bell Parkway. Thank you. I'm going to order some, actually. Thank you. You, you might want to check that your car's still out there. Is it not? What did they move? Uh, the, the, there was two cars. I don't know which car is yours. It, it's the it's the it's the truck. It's the sport. There's utility two trucks vehicle. out there. Well, is one of them white? Yes. Okay. All right, so we're okay. okay. All right, all right. Joseph is in the Bronx. Hello, Joseph. Yeah. Good morning. Uh, very briefly concerning Ukraine and uh, Russia, you know, you're not going to get a very straight story. You're going to get the same vituperation of Russia and Putin. Russia, Putin. He's the thug. He's the villain. He's the enemy. Now, again, with the control media. You're not going to get an even balanced story from them. That being said, I mentioned this before. I will mention it again before I make my statement. Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, visit him at paulcraigroberts.org. 
So again, you'll get balanced information. Right, Joe, with the I, I hear you. Sides. I hear you plug Paul Craig Roberts on this show multiple times. Rudy Giuliani's show multiple times. So I, 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 don't, I hope you're getting paid uh, from, from Paul Craig Roberts. I, I don't know what. Um... Oh, 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 hold, hold on, hold on. Now, be that, before we go off on a tangent, yes. I mean, you know, whether I get a commission, that's my business between me and Dr. Roberts, okay? But uh, anyway, but with regard to uh, the situation in Ukraine, you have to remember this situation was initiated by U.S. foreign policy. Well, I said that. New York... I said that. I, I know, but, but I'm just saying for anyone who's unaware you know, who might be listening. The neoconservatives control foreign policy in Washington, D.C. You had one vain, glorious neoconservative by the name of Victoria Newland back in 2014. She spent five billion U.S. taxpayer dollars overthrowing the democratically elected government. Right. Uh, okay. The- I-, I said all of this. I said this. I said all of this. And you know what I did, Joe, uh, is I managed to say it without my radio on in the background in another room, uh, which made my words, I think, a little bit more easy to understand than yours. Thank you, Joe. Jeff is in West Islip. Hello, Jeff. Frank, I would like to thank you the other night for the education of uh, the uh, political patronage to China. Uh, You know, I always thought it was a Democratic thing, but you uh, widened my horizon when you spoke of Neil Bush. Well, thank oh you. God. And again, uh, that was, uh, you know, um, that was uh, the word from Isaac Stonefish. Uh, that's uh, that's his scholarship. But yeah, the the China oh issue God. is absolutely bipartisan. And if if people if people research that themselves, they'll see that. Wow, you opened my eyes. Uh, one other quick point: you uh, you mentioned uh, peppermint patty, you know, Rhode Island Red, that we all got to suck it up for this Russian thing. Are they serious? And uh, and I also heard the. Uh, the guy from Carolina, uh, Lindsey Gramnesty, he said we got to suck it up. These people are insane. All right. So what do you think you sh- we should do here, Jeff? We don't have to suck it up. I mean, the president's got to get a brain and open up the oil lines. Well, this guy is gonna, you, you, this no guy argument for me on bomb. that one. No argument for me on that one. I think that was a big, big mistake uh, for the American economy. And uh, I think the fact that the price of oil internationally is about to go exponentially up, it illustrates what a what a mistake that that was. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Wow, Frank. Okay, Frank, look, I know this is your show and everything, but the callers should respect the subject we're trying to deal with, too. I mean, they have the right to call us everything, but they're going to go off the subject like that, just go somewhere else. I mean, come on, that's that's taking, you know, that's taking something out of what we want to talk about. Okay, Frank, I agree with you so much um, about the wall. When that wall came down, we should have bum-rushed over there to consolidate with uh, Russia, you know? Another thing, when did Russia and China grow up on us like that? They got so big, their weapons got so big, and we can't even get chips for our stuff. What's going on? One more thing, Ukraine, they got to join NATO if we help them. They got to join NATO, you know, because if we stick our head out for them, then, uh, you know, they got to come to us, you know. Uh, Russia needs an embarrassment, but we're not the one to give it to them because we want to talk about civil rights. We need to shut up. You know, one more thing. I, hopefully the people in the army intervene and say, no, nah, we ain't going to let you start World War III because that's what, I don't think he's trying to start that. Thank you, Frank. I'm, I'm going to turn off now. And thank, thank you, Tom. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate you calling. Let me just say again, I completely disagree with the uh, idea that um, Tom brought up that you that Ukraine ought to join NATO. The thing that you have to ask yourself is, 
what does the United States gain if NATO expands? What does the United States gain if NATO expands to Russia's borders? Now, if NATO already included Ukraine and Russia invaded Ukraine, which they've now done, we would now be under our Article 5 treaty obligation, we would be duty treaty bound to defend Russia, mili- uh, excuse me, to defend Ukraine militarily. What would we gain by that? How is any American made safer by advocating for Ukraine's membership in NATO? I would argue just the opposite. Have Ukraine be an Eastern, Euro- Eastern European version of Switzerland. They should be neutral, neither fish nor fowl. Neither Russia nor uh, NATO. Let them trade with both and let uh, the, the West, including the United States, not keep giving them weapons and not keep fomenting coup d'etat. That's my two cents. We're going to go live to Atlantic City with Harry Hurley in mere moments. Uh, this is the other side of midnight. We're on Facebook as well at Facebook.com. Slash Morano fan. That's facebook.com slash M O R A N O fan. And you can uh, join our Facebook group uh, as well. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. And if you want to comment on the uh, Academy Awards issue as well, if you share my unhappiness at the changes being made, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you don't, 800 848 9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. Monopoly City, uh, the city that uh, I think is a strong candidate for most interesting city in America, maybe even the world, although uh, there'd be some Eastern European um, cities that are vying for that title today. And uh, we are talking to one of my favorite people for this edition of the AC Report. 
He is a longtime radio talk show host. These days you can hear him on WPG. And uh, he is a former Trump casino executive. And you can frequently hear him as a fill-in host for Brian Kilmeade, who does a great job here on WABC every day from 10 a.m. to noon. He's a longtime friend of mine, Harry Hurley. Uh, Good morning, Harry. Thanks for starting your day a little earlier than it should be starting. Side at midnight. How you doing, Frank? I'm hanging in there. Uh, Harry, I know uh, in addition to your expertise regarding New Jersey politics and all things Atlantic City, you are a keen observer of the geopolitical scene. Give me your reaction to what we're seeing with Russia and Ukraine and uh, the the tumult in Eastern Europe. Well, it's terrible. Uh, I, I also think it was avoidable because obviously for the past four years, Putin didn't even look at Ukraine And I believe they looked at what happened in Afghanistan. They saw weakness. They saw a terrible uh, handling of that. And I think it emboldened Putin to get very uh, provocative, aggressive. And now, as your listeners are always awake for Frank Morano on the other side of midnight on 77 WABC, there's a full-scale invasion as we speak. Uh, Putin has said some of the most dangerous things any world leader, especially a world leader with nuclear weapons, has ever said. And he has said if any nation in the world gets involved, that you will see things that the world has never seen before. I mean, if that's not KGB code for uh, his nuclear weaponry, uh, I don't know what is. Uh, It's a a tipping point. The Dow futures are down about 800 as of a few moments ago. It's going to be a rough day on Wall Street. Energy is a big issue now. Uh, A lot of problems, Frank. And then, of course, uh, President Xi in China is now looking at Taiwan. Uh, Iran is looking to go nuclear. Uh, The world is very different than it was 13 months ago. Now, uh, President Trump, who, as I mentioned, you had a professional relationship with in the casino business, but who you were also a a big supporter of and said so publicly on the radio, he was on uh, the Fox News channel yesterday with uh, Laura Ingram, and and he's being uh, criticized a little bit for some of the comments he made to Laura Ingram. Here's a small bit of what he said on Fox News last night. Satisfied with the peace. And now he sees the weakness and the incompetence and the stupidity of this administration. And as an American, I'm angry about it and I'm saddened by it. And it all happened because of a rigged election. This would have never happened. And that includes inflation and that includes millions of people pouring in on a monthly basis, far more than three million people. And they're coming from 129 different countries. We have no idea what's happening. And they're destroying our country. President Trump, we actually have just hold on. I'm so sorry. So uh, he's being uh, criticized even by some of his supporters for going back for one in a previous interview, referring to uh, the Russian aggression towards Ukraine as genius. And then in that Laura Ingram interview, uh, again, bringing up the idea of a rigged election. And then uh, some people are saying that's why Laura Ingram interrupted him to go to a, uh, a briefing by the Pentagon. What's your take on how President Trump is handling this Russia-Ukraine situation? Well, he's always easy to criticize because he speaks in a way that no one has ever spoken before that's achieved the presidency. If you break them down one point at a time, put it all together, and it just looks like like a shotgun blast or something, taking a piece out of 20 corners. But Afghanistan was a disaster. 
I thought that was a fair comment. The president will always believe that the election was rigged. He's always going to stand by that. So he slips that in there. At this moment, that probably should have been left out because it's not helpful. Uh, He believes it, though, so he's going to say it, and it's top of mind to him, even though a lot of people would like him to stop talking about 2020 so that Republicans can win 2022 and then 2024, you know, come back in 2024 and and start talking about winning the presidency a second time. Uh, And some of the other points, I mean, they're not unfair. I mean, the only thing that that probably some of the um, peanut gallery can take shots at him for is bringing up the 2020 election because they go crazy. Let's not forget, though, Hillary Clinton is still not conceded. Uh, Stacey almost Governor Abrams said that she got cheated and that the election was rigged. So the other side does it. They never acknowledge the 2020 election and legitimacy of President Trump, and they get away with holding him accountable for not or the 2016 election. And they get away with holding him accountable for not uh, agreeing that the 2020 election was on the up and up. How is he any different than them? Now, that's a uh, fair points all, Harry. Harry, uh, if we look at the polarizing issue, uh, not in Washington, D.C., not in Eastern Europe, but in your city of Atlantic City, a lot of that is over smoking right now. And there's a big debate over whether or not smoking should be prohibited in casinos. It seems like this push is getting renewed momentum. Break this uh, down for us, Harry. Why is this issue coming to light all of a sudden, seemingly again, the issue of whether to ban smoking in casinos? And could this be the year that it finally happens? Okay, on the first point, the reason it's uh, happening now is because Senate president, former Senate president, good friend of mine, good Democrat, proving there are good Democrats, uh, Steve Sweeney was defeated in his election. As you know, the, the leadership of both the Senate and the Speaker of the Assembly, even if the will of the body uh, has the votes to do certain things, if the Senate president doesn't post it, it goes nowhere. Senate President Sweeney was never, ever, ever, never going to post the smoking legislation. The votes have been there. Uh, This is going to happen. I mean, I don't even think it's an earth-shattering breaking news report on the other side of midnight with Frank Morano on 77 WABC. It's it's happening. Uh, The votes are there. It will be posted this time. That's the only thing that kept it from happening in the past. And the casinos had an an exemption carved out in the prior legislation so that parts of the casino could still have smoking. You're very familiar with the um, industry. Tried and true, there was always just this belief that some of the biggest players love a drink in one hand, a cigarette in the other, love to gamble, don't take the cigarette away from them. Other jurisdictions haven't. Don't make Atlantic City not be competitive. And so it stayed. There was a lot of opposition to it. What also fueled it was during the pandemic, when indoor face masks were required, you could not smoke and casinos did well. So it was like, hey, you don't need the smoking to do well. We already proved you don't need it. Now, in fairness, big difference between pent up uh, demand and then you could go back in and people knew with a mask on, there's no way that you can smoke. So they accepted that. Once that was removed, the smoking came back. I'd like to see a compromise. Make it non-smoking all the way around, but have maybe smoking lounges so you could have a glassed-in area or some kind of completely separate area with HVAC, 
because as you know, I, I mean, I've seen you. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm, I enjoy a cigar, cigar. You know, absolutely, yeah. while playing craps or, you know, having a drink. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I am, look, I'm cognizant of the fact that uh, I don't want all the people that don't get, a, you know, that are working in these casinos getting sick because of all the secondhand smoke that you're exposed, that they're exposed to. But uh, it, is, it would be nice if there was a place, a lounge like what you're describing, that would uh, allow a cigar smoker or a cigarette smoker uh, a refuge. Yeah. And because historically that's always gone hand in hand with Atlantic City and with casinos. I mean, it's like having a church without without allowing prayer. It's it's true from the from the traditional way of looking at things. It's removing an amenity, if you will, something. And let's face it, in some cases, if you're going to have a gambler play for an extended period of time, smoking is, as you know, a significant addiction. Sure. So they want to smoke. They, they, they chemically, you know, their body is telling them they need to smoke. They need that nicotine. They need what, what they have become addicted to. I don't think we're going to see um, a hybrid model. I think it's going to be all or nothing. Mm. And I believe that the will of the legislature and Governor Murphy has indicated uh, without question that he will sign it. Uh, I think it's going to happen. And Atlantic City casinos will be smoke free. The there was a report I saw that came out uh, this week, which indicated that if this smoking ban goes through, it could cost casinos twenty five hundred jobs or so. Now, who knows how much of that is the industry trying to protect itself from your perspective as a casino executive? Do you buy those numbers? Do you think that a smoking ban in casinos could cost twenty five hundred jobs? No. Uh, I know that it's easy to say because it's a hypothetical. Let's go back in time. Do you remember when restaurants went non-smoking? Oh, sure. I I like going to bars and restaurants a lot more now than when they allowed smoking in Jersey and New York. Same here. Listen, I lost both my parents to endocarcinoma of the lung. They were uh, World War II era folks. My father had the, the cigarettes and his rations, you know, in World War II. Doctors wore lab coats and said that smoking is good for you, that it helps with your digestion. I mean, it was just a horrific thing to watch. Uh, I despise cigarette smoking, but as a former casino vice president, I am mindful that there is a portion of your clientele that really wants it. I wish there could be a way to satisfy that. I don't think it's going to happen that way, but no, I don't buy the 2,500 jobs. And remember, if everybody is on an equal playing field, sure. now, now you know there's, there's a proliferation of gaming coming, uh, you know, your neck of the woods at, at some point, and do they go non-smoking? If, if one jurisdiction has an advantage because they allow it, then you're going to have some loss of casino play. But if everybody has you know, the same playing field, it's not going to matter. And no, 2,500 jobs will not be lost. Uh, the gamblers will come. And just like with dining, you get used to it. And you remember, they would have a non-smoking section, and the booth right next to you was smoking. <laughs> right, you'd have to crawl crazy. through, uh, yeah. you know, 40 feet of tobacco smoke to go to the yeah. men's room or something. It was rough. Plume of smoke. It was rough. So, uh, but, but look, the restaurants and the bars, everywhere that used to have smoking that no longer can, everybody, you know, in, in no time at all, accepts the rules of the game. They're going to love to recreate. They're going to love to play at their favorite casino. They're going to love their dinner at their great restaurant and their great suite in the hotel. It, it, it will be an adjustment period, but it, it will be fine.
So when we spoke, I think the last time that we spoke on the radio was uh, early December. And what I mentioned uh, to you at the time is even when Atlantic City has historically had a rough time, they always sort of rally during the uh, the summer months and the couple of weeks before summer, the couple of weeks after summer, even when Atlantic City was at its nadir, it always did well during the summer. Winter is always a little bit of a question mark. Now that we are in the right in the middle of winter and, uh, you know, a month into it, how has the winter been treating Atlantic City? Busier as compared to previous years or about the same? I'm going to say a little busier because obviously – Omicron has let let go a bit. Um, I spoke to Dr. Neshwat from Fox News yesterday. She had one case in in the past something like two weeks, uh, and that, that's in the Big Apple. So things are are getting better in that regard. The casinos, Atlantic City is not a seasonal town anymore, as you know. It's a twelve month town, and remember when. The off-season, if there is, there is a shoulder season. I mean, obviously, summer is gangbusters. But during the shoulder season and off-season, if you will, you have the Meet AC, which is the tourism uh, arm of the city. They're they're doing a great job uh, putting people in beds, having conventions, having meetings. Uh, Atlantic City is doing very, very well. No one is complaining. And sports betting is doing phenomenal. You mentioned sports betting recently, a month or so ago, New York went full throttle into sports gaming, not just sports gaming at casinos. But now, as a New Yorker, you can bet on sports right from your mobile phone. I had been curious what that was going to mean for Atlantic City's gambling bottom line. Has that had any effect yet or is it too soon to tell? Uh, it's going to have an effect. I mean, remember when when Mohegan Sun first was Foxwoods, no big deal. Atlantic City didn't. It was a dent. Nobody felt it. Mohegan Sun opened up in Connecticut. Oops, a little bit, little leakage. The big thing was when Pennsylvania got casinos and Atlantic City lost a huge amount of convenience gaming that would come from Philadelphia. Somebody just wants to play a slot machine or do something, that, that, and they don't want the full recreation, the full experience of the room, the dining, the entertainment. Then they stayed in, in Pennsylvania. That hurt a lot. And then you see as the, the gaming expands in all these other jurisdictions. Uh, it, it absolutely affects. The thing about um, sports betting, let's not forget, Chris Christie did it. That case was dead. Mm-hmm. It was going nowhere. It had been settled case law. Dollar Bill Bradley sold us out. Christy Whitman sold us out. We had two years to get it on the ballot and get it passed. The former speaker, Garabet Chukaitayan, refused to post the bill. The votes were there, just like we're talking about earlier, Frank, on your show. It died, and the Democrats trashed Chris Christie for taking it to the Supreme Court. It was a Hail Mary they granted what's called certiorari. They took the case. New Jersey won the case. And look how many jurisdictions around the country now have sports betting. That was something, until that happened, Vegas had a monopoly. Uh, so that's huge. And, yes, I mean, sports betting in New York is not helpful to Atlantic City. But you know what? This pie is big. And when you, you know how some of the rules are, that, for example, if you were in Florida, you can't play the New Jersey lottery. Right. Your phone, it knows that you're a thousand miles away and you can't play. 
So some of the territorial If you're in Nevada, stuff, you can't play Powerball. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, it, it'll be okay. It'll be fine. It would be if you're being parochial, you'd rather them not have it. But there, there's plenty to go around. It'll, it'll be just fine. Uh, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Harry Hurley. He is uh, the, a terrific radio talk show host. He's somebody that knows New Jersey politics as well as anybody. He was the first uh, person, first broadcaster from South Jersey in the New Jersey Broadcasters Hall of Fame. Uh, so also a terrific philanthropist, uh, and uh, I am a regular attendee to his charity dinner every year, and uh, that always results in more than one story uh, to tell. Uh, Harry, uh, I am curious, one of the issues that we've been studying and chronicling over the last couple of weeks and months has been the announcement of a new water park at Showboat. Some people are very optimistic about this. They think it's going to be an attraction that uh, attracts uh, an atypical person to Atlantic City or provides a, a lot of opportunities for folks that uh, uh, may not want to gamble but happen to be in Atlantic City because they're there with their parents or their uh, relatives of some sort. Other people are saying this is not the right project for Atlantic City and it's not going to do well. As somebody that's observed the scene closer than anybody for literally decades – do you think that this water park at the showboat is going to do well? Well, I hope so. There was a late great casino president, Dennis Gomes, who did Tivoli Pier at Tropicana. It was a full-fledged indoor amusement park. I love that. I used to have a lot of fun. I, I, I used did. to go with my grandmother. I, I loved it, too. Didn't make it. Uh, baseball didn't make it in Atlantic City. Basketball didn't make it in Atlantic City. Hockey didn't make it in Atlantic City. There is a concern that only gaming and those things that surround gaming, the hospitality rooms and, and meetings and conventions and things like that work in Atlantic City. Uh, Bart Blatstein, who is the owner of Showboat, and Frank knows that, but for Frank's listeners, the guy is a winner. He's done things in Philadelphia that are just absolutely amazing. Uh, he tried to do big things on what's called the uh, Ocean One Mall, the pier uh, shops formerly of Caesars, and then Caesars sold. Uh, and that's closed right now. That didn't make it. And he had big plans. Uh, I'm concerned about past being prologue. However, he is all in. We've interviewed Bart Blatstein many, many times on this. In fact, I have a lot of um, renderings. We were the first to break the renderings uh, of his water park. It, it will be the largest indoor water park in America, one of the largest in the world. It is opulent. It will have uh, an island feel to it where you can have your own cabana uh, and recreate. Uh, you, don't, you don't even have to go into the water park section, food and beverage. Uh, I, I think it has a shot. Mm. I think it has a good shot. And obviously, Bart Blatstein uh, is putting a lot into this. Um, I'm rooting for it. Uh, I'm concerned about the past, but I'm optimistic about the future. And um, one of the the other properties that seems to be investing and expanding and renovating has been Bally's. There's a couple of nice new restaurants there. I was at uh, Jerry Longo's Meatballs and Martinis. It was a terrific place. Uh, there are apparently, under the new ownership, plans to expand uh, a wide variety of things. And this week, 
They unveiled 222 new hotel rooms. You know, for the last few years, Bally's was always sort of the sort of the bastard redheaded stepchild of the boardwalk properties, sort of the place that you might hang out at if, you know, if you couldn't get a room anywhere else or if everywhere else was too crowded. Uh, is this a new era for Bally's as far as you're concerned, Harry? Oh, there's no question. The, the promise is there. And also, as you know, from what you just outlined, Frank, the reinvestment is there. Bally's, one of the things you never want to be, and you remember the casino industry used to be boutique owners, and whether it was Steve Wynn or Donald Trump or Merv Griffin, and it was very different. When it became more corporate, and you still have with Morris Bailey and Resorts a boutique model, but when it became more corporate, that property that you're talking about, which at one point was one of the biggest performers in Atlantic City, was put on the toxic asset side of the books wow. of the corporate structure. And you never want to be there because then that's just, just the death of a thousand cuts because no reinvestment, the rooms go bad. You always have to stay on top of you know, the physical plant. So the, the, when you ask the question, how is Atlantic City doing? Look at the reinvestment in the town. Every single property is upgrading the physical plant adding amenities, adding restaurants, adding rooms, as you just said. Uh, the future is bright there because the new ownership is putting money back into the place, and they're not putting good money to do bad. Uh, it's, a, it's a very optimistic sign. One of the most talked about congressmen in the whole country, especially over the last couple of years, has been your congressman, Jeff Van Drew. He was a Democrat and a conservative Democrat always, uh, was supportive of uh, some of Donald Trump's policies, got a lot of blowback for his, from his own party, ended up becoming a Republican, won a tight reelection race two years ago. He's been criticized by a lot of Republicans this year for voting for the infrastructure package. And uh, I know uh, yesterday was his birthday. He was on the radio with you. You know that district better than anybody. How does it look for Jeff Van Drew under the new redistricting lines? And overall, how do you see the congressional races playing out in New Jersey this year, south and north, if you care to comment? Re- Redistricting isn't done yet because it's a cat and mouse thing. They each get several maps. The maps as we know them now, but it's not the final map, Van Drew's district becomes even a little bit stronger because there's a town that's in District 1 that will come back to District 2, and it is a Republican town. I'm interviewing Jeff Andrew at 3.35 p.m. today when I fill in nationally for Guy Benson. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that, but of course now, especially with the full-blown, full-scale invasion uh, of Ukraine, uh, that's going to be the thrust you know, of the interview. We would have talked more about redistricting, uh, but you know, just like you do, you, sure. go, you go where go the, the priorities. Yeah. yeah, take you. Uh, that's not going to be a big deal in District 1 or District 2. Testa wins one. Van Drew wins two. Let's not forget, Van Drew beat a Kennedy by a wide margin, one of the most well-funded mm. opponents in the country. And Van Drew won by a lot. And he, not even – I don't even want to do this like it looks like I'm correcting you. That misnomer about how close that one election was, Van Drew won by almost eight points in America today. That's not close. Yeah, that, that's um, true. That's fair. Yeah, he's not had a he has not had a close election. It, but the but the 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 urban legend, the myth, is that it was close because before all the votes were counted, 
uh, he was only up, I think, by like four points or something. But he came close to doubling that uh, when late vote tallies were put in. So he was not at risk. Uh, he had a comfortable win. Uh, and he'll have, uh, I believe, an even more comfortable win. Let's not forget uh, last year was a wave election. This is going to be a supernova wave election. It's going to be a very rough year for Democrats. Let's not forget in the last election cycle, the longest serving Democrat in the state, Steve Sweeney in District 3, lost his seat to a guy that spent like lunch money on his campaign. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, the, so the next possible right now. The next time you're here, Harry, I'm going to ask your, uh, you to handicap the uh, New Jersey gubernatorial election uh, in 2024 because some people are saying that Steve Sweeney may still be a candidate for that. And Jack Cittarelli's already indicated he's going to be a candidate for that. Do you have a date for your dinner th- this year yet and any honorees picked out, Harry? Uh, I can't say the honoree because we don't have that. Um, nailed down but if all goes well it will be a very familiar name oh boy and uh we'll we'll be sending out sort of a little tease in the not too distant future and the um the dinner is set uh for and we know we moved it to october uh we are set for friday october 14th wonderful i'm looking forward to it i will be there as I am uh, every year, and I will look forward to uh, seeing you and speaking to you many times before that, Harry. Appreciate it. Next hey, time I, you fill listen, in for Brian Kilmeade, let me know in advance so we can will, tell the yeah, audience. My Facebook page, because it was on there for the last two days. Um, I want to congratulate you. I know we're out of time in this segment. I want to congratulate you on your absolutely monstrous ratings. I hope, because you don't brag, I hope your listeners understand you are doing uh, an average share that few broadcasters in the history of our business have ever achieved. Could not be more proud well, of you, my friend. Harry, I appreciate it. And uh, in, at the risk of sounding patronizing, I've learned a lot from you. And uh, throughout uh, the time that I've known you, you've always been available, whatever hour, whatever shift, whatever station I've been doing. And uh, I'm grateful for uh, you, you being a good friend to me and the medium of talk radio. And certainly well, to you Atlantic You own the City. other side of midnight, my friend. You <laughs> own it. And uh, you're dominating. Harry, I will see you soon. I will speak with you soon. Take care. Thanks for the opportunity to be on your show. You, hey, can hear, you can hear Harry Hurley regularly as he fills in for Brian Kilmeade. And uh, I guess maybe you should look at his Facebook page a little bit more closely than I did because I missed that, that he was filling in. Harry, H-U-R-L-E-Y on Facebook and other forms of social media as well. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Straight ahead. WABC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Cheryl Crow leaving Las Vegas. I'll tell you, I, I, I spend a good portion of the day thinking, right? I think when I'm driving, I think when I'm talking, I think when other people are talking, 
even in spite of my best efforts, when I try to sit and observe what other people are saying, I, I'm thinking. I think while I'm sleeping. And sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll say, you know, it's like Jerry Seinfeld in that Seinfeld episode, Flaming Globes of Sigmund. Uh, I'll wake up and suddenly I'll say, my goodness, I just had the best idea for a radio segment or a radio guest or for something to say. And then all of a sudden when I become a little more awake, I realize that it was not that brilliant of an idea. But I spent a lot of time thinking in the shower. And I talked about a year or so ago um, how frustrating it was, maybe two years ago, how frustrating it was that I would forget about all these ideas that I would come up with in the shower. And so somebody said, well, you need to get these special notes that you can put on the wall of your shower and it's waterproof and right. And I did. And so somehow when my wife and I made the transition to our new home uh, about a year ago, I this this pad did not make the transition to our new bathroom. So this week I ordered a new shower pad because too many of of my ideas were pardon the pun going down the drain so yesterday i finally tried to install it and it's got these suction cups suction cups for the pencil suction cups for the the uh, pad and i cannot get these suction cups to stick to the tile it's the most irritating thing in the world now i spent 20 minutes seemingly maybe 10 Trying to get them to work. I can't do it. So if anybody has a suggestion, please email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I hate to waste the money on this, and I hate to get new ones, uh, And because who knows if those will work. Until next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It's Thursday morning. We are monitoring the events in Eastern Europe. Uh, Ukraine is under siege. They are reporting that big cities are under attack by the Russian military. Russia is claiming they are not attacking cities. Um, This has gone beyond the two breakaway republics of Donetsk and Lugansk. And uh, Ukraine has declared martial law in response to this Russian attack. Civilians are fleeing the Ukrainian capital city of Kiev. And uh, I don't mind telling you that, uh, and I'm sorry to say, that I was wrong. I never expected Vladimir Putin to be this bold in an invasion of Ukraine. And uh, this is, to say this is disappointing is a... Dramatic understatement. Now, my as as much as I want the best for the people in Ukraine, uh, my priority 
is what's best for the United States. And in my view, the best thing for the United States is avoiding further conflict with Russia. And uh, I think we need to look for an off-ramp here, a way that uh, Russia can back off and still save face and a way that uh, the United States can uh, can do the same. And uh, that's my hope. Now, I'm going to play you some audio from uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who I think has been right on the money on this issue for literally years. She's a Democratic congresswoman, a, a very progressive Democratic congresswoman, actually. She was a vice chair of the DNC. She supported Bernie Sanders in uh, for president back in 2016. And uh, she's a, a very progressive Democrat. But she has been very critical of many different aspects of Biden's policy and the Democratic Party in general and Hillary Clinton. So she has been welcomed by some traditionally conservative outlets as well. I'm going to play for you what she said on the Fox News channel yesterday. I want to thank um, James, who sent me the following email on my uh, suction cup issue. He says, uh, the, the, I have to clean the tiles thoroughly with alcohol and then do the same with the suction cups. You know, it's funny. The last one of these that I had, the last one of these pads that I had with these suction cups, I seem to remember it coming with alcohol to allow me to do that. And I didn't see it this time around. Now, I'm sure I do have some of that uh, isopropyl, isopropyl, I don't know how it's pronounced. Well, you know, the the, the alcohol that's spelled I I S O. P-R-O-P-Y-L. Isipropyl? I don't know. But that kind of alcohol, I do have some, um, and I will use, and that's maybe what I'll try before I break down and buy some other waterproof pad or uh, do something else here because I hate to waste the money. And I do need this. I need a pad in the shower because that's where I'm getting all my good ideas. So um, those of you that are holding, Robert, Jeff, Leo, Benjamin, I will get to you. The rest of you, if you want to be heard from this, three open lines, 800-848-9222. I want to bring this to your attention. This is an article I came across um, a few days ago, but I found it very interesting to me, and it's led me to do a lot of research. And I know we have a lot of parents that listen. Now, my wife and I have told you before, we are now the parents of a three-month-old, and both of us are very eager to have our son participate in sports once he's uh, old enough to do so, both, you know, informal sports, getting together with his friends and so forth, or and playing, you know, unorganized play, which I think is very important, but also, you know, organized sports, things like Little League or other sports, whatever sports strike his interest. We think it's important for him not only for to maintain physical fitness, but to encourage team building, to encourage working with others. I mean, there's so many advantages, in my opinion, to having youth participate in sports. So I ended up coming across this article. It was actually in the Hunting, Huffington Post with the headline, Your Kid Isn't Loving Sports, When Is It Okay to Let Them Quit? And then it's, a, it's an article. It's written by Kelsey uh, Borison. 
how to figure out if you should push your child to stick with the team or allow them to throw in the towel. And it got me wondering, you know, what if we encourage our and Rachel, my wife, Rachel, has very specific ideas of not pushing our child into anything, but showing him that we enjoy things like baseball or whatever the case may be, and then having him want to participate once he's exposed to those things. And I think her strategy is a good one. But what if we encourage him to participate in sports, baseball, soccer, uh, hockey, whatever the case might be, and he just doesn't want to do it? When do you let your child quit? Let's say as an eight-year-old, right, or a nine-year-old. That's a prime little league year, right, nine. What if he says, all right, I'm not into it. Uh, do you what point do you say, all right, well, you don't want to do it. Don't do it. What if he doesn't like sports? At what point do we say, all right, it's OK to quit? 800-848-9222, because I've done not only read this article in the Huffington Post, but I've now done a whole bunch of other ancillary research. And I have to tell you, I am no closer to an answer on this than I was before reading the article. Give me your tick, 800-848-9222. I'm going to link to this article on uh, my Facebook page if you want to read it, facebook.com slash Fan. If you join our Facebook group, not only will you see hear the uh, or see the bumper music that we play each and every day, but you'll get to the hear that interview that I did with George Beebe on Russia yesterday. So all you have to do is search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. Tulsi Gabbard was on uh, the Fox News channel a day or so ago yesterday with uh, Sean Hannity. Now, here's what happened. Now, Tulsi Gabbard, Tucker Carlson, and me, we have more or less, there are differences, but we have more or less the same view of foreign policy. Which is, and again, uh, Tulsi Gabbard is a progressive. Tucker Carlson is a conservative, I think. Uh, I would consider myself somewhere in the middle. But when it comes to foreign policy, we view the world the same way. And because Tucker thinks Tulsi has had a lot to add on the foreign policy front, he's been having her on his show for years, since it started. And so I've noticed that recently Hannity has been having her on a lot, too. Now, I think that he sees the ratings that Tucker is doing, and he's trying to... I don't have any inside information on this. He's trying to Tuckerize his show a little bit, I think, so that he can enjoy that same ratings boost. He's doing great, doing very well, but I think he wants kind of Tucker numbers, and he thinks Tulsi, because of the way that she looks, because of the way that she speaks, because of the positions that she takes... Maybe Tulsi is an important element in the ratings battle there. And I think that um, I think that there's this whole internal battle when it comes to which guests are on which shows. My friend Arthur Idala used to be a big uh, he used to be a contributor, legal analyst over at the Fox News Channel. And. He was telling me one time, this is years ago, that Hannity asked him to come on his show. 
And he, I think, declined because he had a conflict. And he mentions to his friend Megyn Kelly, who was on right before Hannity at that time, well, you got to come on with me. I want you to come on with me. And she put so much pressure on him to come on, essentially just because Hannity had asked to have him on that same day. So I think that's part of the reason that Hannity has been having Tulsi on more. But here's what's interesting. Hannity is so used these days. It wasn't always this way. He used to have guests that would disagree. But Hannity is so used to having guests on that agree with him on everything and that he agrees with on everything that it's just one giant echo chamber, by and large, that he doesn't know how to handle a Tulsi Gabbard. So Tulsi was on Hannity yesterday talking about Russia invading Ukraine despite the American sanctions. It's clear that she was sent there uh, to be the voice of the United States as a purely political calculation. You and I both know she has no foreign policy background, no foreign policy understanding. She has no concept of the cost of war, nor does she have the temper temperament necessary to be the voice of the United States on the global stage. So it's embarrassing to see this play out. I I want to talk about the two examples uh, that you raised there where she talked about deterrence and sanction. How do you how do you deter someone by punishing them before they do it? Uh, It's it's very simple. This is kind of like grade school understanding where if you say I'm going to punish you before you do something, wouldn't a kid say, "Okay, fine, well, I might as well go ahead and do it anyway. Uh, Now, she's exactly right. I think that is exhibit triple Z as to why these sanctions were unwise and ineffective. But they get into a little back and forth on the issue of NATO and NATO expansion and Russia's view of NATO. This is Tulsi Gabbard on the show, on Sean Hannity's program on uh, Fox News. You had an interesting theory that if only Biden would have said, no, Ukraine will never be a part of NATO, you think it might have been able to, we might have been able to prevent things that way. Explain that part. Uh, it's really just looking at the world through a very realistic lens, Sean. It's understanding the world that we live in and not the world that maybe some people wished existed. And that reality is Putin has made very clear all along that uh, their security in his mind uh, is what's at stake here. And they but do not want to see interrupt you, U.S. and NATO Putin also con- said Ukraine is not a country. And he has been saying this going back many, many years. So this has been these territorial ambitions have existed a long time. I want to stay focused on, on the security component. They, they have. They go way back and they, they pre-exist this, this uh, moment that we are facing. But with regards to U.S. and NATO, just like we would not want Russia to come in and start putting their tanks and missiles on our borders, either with Mexico or elsewhere, uh, Russia says, hey, I don't want U.S. and NATO coming and making their military outposts on our borders within Ukraine. Guess what? The United States doesn't want that either. NATO countries don't want that either. So why not recognize, say, hey, this is something that actually is common ground. It is highly unlikely Ukraine will ever become a member of NATO. Let's take it off the table. And immediately that would de-escalate these tensions and take that reasoning away from Putin for him to build up this presence on Ukraine's border. I might be a little more suspicious than you in believing that I think this is very personal for Putin. And he's taking this as this is Russian land and we will take it. And how far he goes with that, I don't know. So I completely agree with Tulsi Gabbard there. We should be taking Ukrainian membership in NATO off the table. 
And uh, there's one more bit of uh, Tulsi Gabbard on uh, Sean Hannity's program on Fox News. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden have both said, you know what, we are going to incur a cost. They're not going to pay the price. They're multi, multi millionaires. Both of them, the, the power elite are not going to be negatively impacted by this continued uh, escalation. You know who will pay the price? It is hardworking Americans all across our country and frankly, people around the world who are already paying the price and will continue to see things worsen. There you have it. I'm totally with Tulsi on this. Uh, I think she has viewed the situation correctly from the beginning. I think Sean Hannity has viewed it incorrectly from the beginning, personally. 800-848-WABC. Also, um curious about this article that I just posted on Facebook. What do you do if your child wants to quit sports? When do you end it? 800-848-9222. Matt is on Staten Island. Hello, Matt. Hey, how are you, bud? Uh... I have two boys, 13 and 8. Both of them have played sports since they were about four or five years old. The only condition is you can play whatever sport you want. You cannot quit until the season is over. Ah. You don't want to go go back to the sport. Let let me ask you that, Matt, about that, and that makes sense. Um, Did they select the sport initially, or was it something that you or or your wife had, had sort of egged them into? Uh, we suggested a couple of different things, but in the long run, they get to pick whatever they want to play, but they have to play something. I don't care what it is. If they're part of the chess club or, uh, water polo or football or jujitsu or baseball or whatever it be, but you got to do something. I like that philosophy that you have to stick. If you select a sport, you have to stick with it until the season ends. Uh, that makes sense to me. What if they were to tell you, and it sounds like neither of your sons said this, and I hope certainly that mine doesn't either, but what if they were to tell you, you know, I, I don't like baseball, I don't like soccer, I don't like football, I don't like hockey, I don't like uh, jujitsu, I don't like chess club, I don't want to do any of these activities. What would you then do as a parent in that instance? Uh, first question is, okay, what else interests you? You have to do something. There, I, we, me, my wife and myself don't allow the sit on the couch and play video games until your brain turns to oatmeal. So you have to do something. You have to find something that interests you, a hobby, sports, whatever it is, something that you're passionate about, want to do, continue to do. It, it's, it's too easy to let your kids just sit back and, you know, watch YouTube all day and, and play video games all day. And as a parent, you not force them, but you have to, I would say, strongly encourage them to find a sport or a hobby or something to, to get them motivated. And team sports are extremely important for that. It teaches socializing. It teaches team building. It teaches so many things that kids that miss out on that, I think they miss out on a huge part oh, of I, I completely society. Concur. I completely agree. I concur. So what sports did uh, did or do your boys play? Uh, my older son has played ball since, he's played baseball since four years old. Um, he never wanted to play anything else organized except for baseball. That was him. Um, he's 13 now, still playing. Uh, my younger guy has done baseball, uh, karate, football, and now doing jiu-jitsu. Mm. And all because six months of karate, 
I don't want to do it anymore. I really don't like it. Okay, what else do you want to do? Want to play football? Okay, played football, played the season. Eh, I don't know if I want to do this. I want to go back to baseball. Okay, fine, go back to baseball. Season was over. Eh, I think I want to do jujitsu now. Okay. I never would stifle my kid from, from any sport they wanted to try, but you, you can't, as a parent, sit back and let them just not do nothing. Yep. Try um, everything. Find out what you like. Well, it uh, sounds like a sound philosophy to me, Matt. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Greg is in Dover, Ohio. Hello, Greg. Hi, Frank. How you doing? I'm making a living. There you go. Hey, I coached for 12 years, Little League. And uh, if the kids are already in it, you got to let them quit. You know what I'm saying? Don't just get hurt. Well, so listen, uh, so that's so interesting. So even if it's the middle of the season, what did you make yeah. of, of what Matt said, the previous caller, that said well, he said he'll let his kids quit whatever they want, but they have to stick it through to the end of the season. You don't go along with that. No, I agree with him. It's, it's a father. His, that's his, the kid's father. He can do whatever he wants. He has his right to that. You know what I'm saying? But my feelings are, you know, if I had a kid on the league and, and, uh, and playing for me and his heart wasn't in, his heart wasn't in, in fact, there's a good chance of getting hurt. Right. You know? Right. Right. But uh, the reason I quit, I coached for 12 years. I coached a team of 10-year-olds for 12 years called the Yankees. And, uh, I wrote a book about it, and uh, I went to Amazon about it, and Amazon called me back. He said, uh, you cannot use a Yankees name. <laughs> okay. Really? That, well, I mean, look, I, I get it. I mean, I mean, look, that I mean, it's by the Yankees. on the one hand, it's silly because, look, you know, you're coaching a, a little league team. It's not as if you're opening a, a competing semi-professional baseball team that you're trying to dupe people into buying right. tickets to your team instead of the Yankees. But on the other hand, I guess it's you know it's a copyright that well, they, they told me I, they they told, they told me I had a little chance of getting permission from the Yankees, so I'd have to change the whole name of the book. So I've been deciding whether to do that or not. No, well, keep us posted, okay. Greg. Call me back, and we'll give yeah. you we'll let you plug the book on on air. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah, as long as you read poetry, like that guy. Who's that guy that reads poetry? Do we remember that guy's name that has the depressing poetry? Dave and Dumont. Dave and Dumont. That's right. Oh. And by the way, I've uh, I've read some of, or I've heard read to me, I should say, some of his poetry versus some of Molly's poetry. I gotta tell you, I think Molly's poetry, albeit unpublished, is superior to Dave's. One day we'll do a Molly poetry reading, but not today. The um, you know, in case anyone from Eastern Europe is listening, those folks have suffered enough. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Mike is in Hoboken. Oh, excuse me, Mark is in Westchester. Hello, Mark. Yes, sir. The time when your children do not enjoy the game they're playing is when they are getting no joy out of it. I was a soccer player when I was in high school. My daughters both played soccer. One continues. One moved on to something else. If they don't enjoy it, it's hard to pressure them to do it. You let them quit mid-season, or do you do what that fellow Matt did and make make them stick it through to the end of the season? Oh, no, they stuck it through. I said, finish what you started. I paid for it. Let's do it. And then if you don't want to do it next year, mm-hmm. we will renegotiate your uh, Their contract. Year. Yeah. All yes. right. Well, yes, sir. That strikes me as a pretty good philosophy. Um, now, again, the the I guess the broader problem potentially is what if they decide they don't want to do anything they don't like a sport 
they're not interested in it. What do you do in that instance? 800-848-WABC. Mike's in Hoboken. Hello, Mike. Hey, how Frank? How are you? Well, I'm doing better than the people in Kiev are doing. <laughs> anyway, when I was a kid, I wasn't very good. I was really small. And uh, I couldn't play basketball. I was too short. The to, only thing I could do is run. Learned to run. I ran like 10 marathons. I ran because I want people wanted to catch my lunch money. <laughs> anyway, my <laughs> sons, they were didn't like baseball. Don't think they were good at was lacrosse. Lacrosse, and uh, they were Boy Scouts. And I encouraged them to stay in the Boy Scouts, and both became Eagle Scouts, which is great, right? That is, that is great. That is great, and I, I look. The, and I went. I, I was. I'm, I'm West Point. I'm a West Point graduate. Oh wow, terrific! Yeah. Uh, did, so, were you, were you an officer? I finished up as a captain. Wow. Well, that's great. Well, thanks for your service. You have any thoughts and on I this also, um, on this Russia situation? Shot, I while shot, I have you, I got shot. I got shot in the leg. <laughs> Where? Who shot you? No Vietnamese. <laughs> oh, so you were shot in Vietnam. Any thoughts on this fact, Russia situation? Curtis, I talked to Curtis a couple of days ago. He thinks I'm hallucinating about make on Delta. So. I said, well, look, Curtis hallucinates most of his life. So, uh, you know, that's that's nothing, uh, nothing to sneeze at. I want to thank uh, Bernard Getz, a friend of mine and a regular listener to this show, who sent me the proper frenetic pronunciation of the type of alcohol that I was looking for. It is isopropyl. Isopropyl. Thank you. Thank you, Bernie Getz. See, you know, making the subways safe and helping with radio host pronunciation of isopropyl. 800-848-9222. Molly, uh, you apparently quit softball. What was your what was your issue? It, it wasn't so much that I had an issue with softball. It was more that softballs had an issue with my face. Well, um, you got hurt. Yeah, so I would go to practice, and this was I was like eight years old. So I would go to practice, and and it would batting practice. I I get ready, I'm set. Coach throws the ball right in my face. Get a bloody nose. What? This was slow pitch. This is like you're pitching to an eight year old kind of pitch. Right, but slow pitch. I get. I hope so. Okay. (laughs) I don't know. I. You'll see why I. I don't know anything about softball because the very next game, you know, we're eight. So the coach pitches. We can't throw that fall far. The coach pitches in a game to me and again hits me in the face. Second bloody nose of the season about maybe two weeks in. Uh, mm. I told my parents I was done after that. I I. I'm not a masochist. Did they make you finish the season, though? No, no. No? no See, my, I don't like that. But I, I finished every other season. I, I was very bad, and I persisted All through right. many sports. I was about three feet tall, and fifth grade basketball, they called me the defensive specialist. <laughs> okay. Well, and, I once fouled out in a minute. Uh, I can imagine. Well, your poor parents, they deserve some sort of an award or something. Uh, that's Molly, ladies and gentlemen. 800-848-9222. I'm getting some good suggestions on this suction cup issue. I'm very nervous, though. I'm very, I'm very nervous about this whole uh, suction cup situation. Um, so we'll see where that goes. 800-848-WABC. Uh, let me say hello to Jeff in Forest Hills, who's been patiently holding. Hello, Jeff. 
Hello, Frank. How's everything? Well, no, I'm not going to ask you that. <laughs> you can ask me. I'm not like Curtis. No, no, I'm not going to. No, 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 I'm not no, going to no, bite no, your no. head off for making uh, polite conversation. What a mama lose. Well, I, I love your show because you know what? It's like being at a sitting at a table at a bar mitzvah because you know you're going to talk about one topic and it goes to somebody else. And by the time he gets to you, you're talking about something else. That's right. That's right. I don't know why you're – see, I don't know why it's a bar mitzvah. It's great. No, it's – Rather than a, like a bar – like a – 4.30 in the morning. Oh, well, fair enough. Yeah, but go ahead. What did you want to say, Jeff? I'm in CVS, right? It's raining the other day, so I'm in CVS, and I'm looking – I look down the aisle, and I'll say there's like four people in front of me. So I kind of hustle down the aisle. And I'm dripping a little bit, and the little old lady comes around. So I looked at her. I said, you know what? Okay, you can go in front of me. And she says, no. No, you go ahead, honey. You go. So I said, all right. So I'm standing there, and I'm looking at each other like, so what do you say? I said, so. So how are you? And she looks at me, and she's like tough, you know? And she's kind of, she said, do you, do you listen to Bernie and Sid? I said, Bernie said, yeah, matter of fact, I do. She said, well, you know who Curtis is, right? I said, Curtis Leo, of course. She said, well, you know how he feels about when you ask people, how are you? And so I'm like, holy cow, <laughs> this lady's giving me the business. But she was pretty cool. Wow. She's an avid listener. Her name was Big. So I don't know if she was listening. All right, well, well, she's I, a cool lady. We'll give her a oh, shout yeah. out. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for listening. Can Thank I you to be here. Go ahead. Yeah, with? yeah, go ahead. It's your dime, man. I think, I think the parents are too involved. You know, when we were kids, it was beer money, okay? And that's what it was. And I'm not trying to, we were 15 to 18. Beer money, you went home, you had a parent, you had a slip. Mom, can you sign this? I want to go and play a sport at school. All right, fine, honey. She signed a permission slip, and that was it. That was it. My father was a golf professional. He didn't force me to play golf. Once he saw us hitting golf balls, then he came around and said, okay, you know, but he, he pushed nothing on us. I don't understand that. Like, and their parents get all upset. I don't get that. Well, look, I, I agree with you. I think in many respects the parents um, are too involved. You know, I've seen a lot of uh, parents shouting at the coaches, shouting at the players from the stands. That, to me, is is ridiculous. Oh, Sometimes yeah. oh, even even parents getting into fights. Oh, However, uh, if you yeah. look at the statistics, um, Jeff, you're seeing a lot of um, – you're seeing the level of youth sports participation decline – Every year. And I think that's a shame. So I don't think there's anything wrong with a parent encouraging their children to uh, get involved in sports. But I do think it's a shame uh, that uh, when they take it to the next level, a lot of pressure really, you know, they're trying to fulfill something that they didn't, you know, and so they're trying to get the kid to do it. And, you know, so, yeah. Well, thank anyway. you. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate Please. it. Hey, um, 800-848-WABC. Uh, Mike is in Pennsylvania. Hello, Mike. Yeah, how you doing? Good morning. Morning. Uh, one thing, Kelsey Galvin, I thought she should have been elected president. Amen. I would love to see her run in 2024. Even over Trump. She would have been the one that I think would have really united the country. Uh, I, you know, I, uh, look, I, again, I think if she runs as uh, a uh, third-party candidate in 2024 and it's a Trump versus Hillary race, I think you're going to see people flocking to Tulsi Gabbard. Well, you know what kills me? that I'm going to pick a woman of color. She's a woman of color, and she's got a lot more brains than Kamala Harris, you know, with no problem. I mean, I would feel more at ease in this situation with her as vice president. Same That's here. The thing about the, 
second thing about the kids with sports, my grandsons, they play football, baseball, basketball. They love it. Uh, when my son was growing up, he wanted to do what I did. You know, I used to box, but I wouldn't let him because uh, I, I thought, you know, I, I took, put too many guys in the hospital when I was, when I was fighting. You know, they were going there for broken hands. I right, see you later, guy. Think about it. About <laughs> Thanks, Mike. They were going there for broken hands. <laughs> Means they were hitting him. That's pretty funny. Loretta is out here driving. Hello, Loretta. All right, Loretta is no longer out here driving. Uh, we'll do the $1,000 minute in just a second. If you want to, well, just maybe in 90 seconds. If you want to, a chance to test your wits and try to win $1,000, be the seventh caller to 1-800-848-9222 right now. That's one 800 848-WABC, and then we'll ask, we'll ask you 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. And if you've never participated in the contest before, if you get them right, you'll be $1,000 richer. And look, if you see the inflation on everything from prescription drugs to gasoline, you could use that $1,000. Am I right? 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. side of midnight i'm frank morano that's lady gaga singing replay a very talented artist known as uh, stephanie germanata um we're keeping an eye on this russian war in ukraine i don't know what else you would call it and um evidently ukraine has officially cut its diplomatic ties with russia hopefully things improve hopefully the diplomats are able to bring an end to this fighting, the Americans that are in Ukraine have been told by the State Department to shelter in place. Uh, this as we're seeing a lot of civilians evacuate. Putin has authorized the use of military action in Ukraine. And see, in Ukraine, if you look at a map, there's the Donbass region is in eastern Ukraine. It's touching Russia. And most of the people that live there are Russian. And there are areas that are held by the separatists, Donetsk and uh, Lugansk. And I, we spoke with Russell Bentley from uh, the Republic of Donetsk the other day. And then there are areas that they control. Then there are areas that they claim, but that the Ukrainian government controls. That was the area that I thought that we'd see some fighting in. But apparently the Russian military and the attacks 
from the Russian military have gone even eastward of that. So we'll see what happens. We're going to be keeping an eye on this. Uh, This time tomorrow, I'm hoping to speak with either Colonel Douglas McGregor or Colonel Daniel Davis or both to get a military perspective and, um, you know, an American perspective on what's happening. Meantime, on to more optimistic matters, including how to give one lucky, lucky person an opportunity to win some money. The Other Side of Midnight presents It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's say hello to Alice in Serp City. Hello there, Alice. Hi, how are you? I'm doing uh, just wonderfully. Now, Surf City, didn't the um, didn't the Beach Boys sing a little bit about Surf City? Yeah, I think so, in one of their songs. Where is Surf, Surf City? Surf in USA. Long Beach Island. Oh, Long Beach Island. Okay, I like Long Beach Island. All right. Okay, so you're at the Jersey Shore. Yeah, I'm on my way up north, but I'm, there. I'm here now, yep. Oh, all right, so you're not stopped in Surf City. You're passing through Surf City. No, I live there. Oh, you do? Okay. You're a year-round resident yeah, of Surf City. And I, yeah, I work up north, so I go up. I'm a teacher. Wonderful. And then come down on the weekend. All right. Oh, very nice. Okay. Um, you familiar with this contest, Alice? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, great. So the, the timer will begin after I ask the first question. If you get uh, the questions correct, we're just going to move on to the next one so that we can try and get through all 10 as quickly as possible. Are you ready to go? Okay, I'm ready. All right. How many seconds are in a minute? 60. Which state has cities named Hollywood and San Francisco? California. What founding father discovered electricity? Um, uh, Thomas Edison. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, first of all, Tom- oh, I'm, I'm sure Benjamin Franklin. It was Benjamin Franklin. So you can't rush through these answers, Alice, because no, Thomas I Edison know. was born a hundred years too late. Um, but that was a right. good guess. Well, it was not that good of a guess. But I'm going to put you on hold anyway, and we're going to give. Uh, we're going to have Molly take your information. And a lot of the people that Molly gets their information, you know, they don't always get their prizes. Unlike the. Philippe people who always seem to get it. But hopefully you'll have better luck with Molly than you did trying to win $1,000. But, yes, it was uh, Benjamin Franklin who discovered electricity. Benjamin Franklin. Uh, So she got two questions correct and lost on the third. You can't rush through these questions, guys. You can't. There is time. If you you just think for a second and answer it, you'll you'll have time to answer them all. Don't rush. Uh, If you didn't get a chance to play today... Give us a shot tomorrow. All right? We'll be back tomorrow. And with the $1,000 minute, more $1,000 money. Hey, um, oh, are we keeping an eye on my uh, my wife's car out there? Is it untowed at this moment and ideally unticketed? I have been checking. You have been? It is, it is still there. It's still there. Let, and, me look, let me look again. Yeah, see if it's unticketed as well. It's still there. Let me check if there's a ticket. Let's see. It's exciting. I don't believe there's a okay, ticket. Okay, good. All right. So hopefully... The the only thing that could screw me today is if uh, it's one of those days when our president, Chad Lopez, comes in 
right at five or right right before five, and then he he wants to talk to me for a while, and then it keeps me here until six or six thirty or seven. That's the only thing that could hurt me because I think right now I'm I see the finish line. I mean, we're we're stones throw away from five a.m. and me getting this car out of the yeah, no parking you, zone. You better get it out of there because they 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 do come around. I know, I know they normally. Do. I mean, I you know, you, know you can only park till seven a.m. But I, I've seen them out there at seven a.m. Yeah, no, so have I. I've been on the receiving yeah. end yeah. of some of those tickets. Believe you me. Hey. um, those of you that don't hold, I'm going to get to your calls in uh, just a moment. Oh, there was one other story uh, that um, that I wanted to bring to folks' attention, and uh, I I don't know how how I feel about this. Jerry Lewis, look, I'm a big fan of. J- I never met Jerry Lewis, never spoke to Jerry Lewis, never interviewed Jerry Lewis, but I'm a fan of Jerry Lewis as an entertainer. Big fan of his comedy, big fan of his films. I love his collaborations with uh, Dean Martin over the years. Well, there's a new short documentary, an expose, that's been published by Vanity Fair. And it accuses Jerry Lewis, yes, the comedian Jerry Lewis, Laney, of sexual harassment and sexual assault. These interview the interviews with actresses such as Karen Sharp and Hope Holiday were conducted by Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering. This is the duo who tackled Mia Farrow's allegations against Woody Allen in the HBO documentary series Allen versus Farrow, and they're the directors of the Oscar-nominated The Hunting Ground. Lewis was one of the most popular performers in the world. In the 1950s and the 1960s, first, you know, as part of his collaboration with Jerry Lewis and then, you know, doing some other things. So Sharp met the actor during his commercial Zenith. She was cast as Jerry Lewis love interest in the 1964 comedy The Disorderly Orderly. I've actually seen that. They're both great in that. The actress said that she was being fitted for costumes in Jerry Lewis's office when he ordered everyone but her out of the room. Lewis allegedly, quote, started moving in on me. He grabbed me. He began to fondle me. He unzipped his pants. Quite frankly, I was dumbstruck. I put my hand up and said, wait a minute. I don't know if this is a requirement for your leading ladies, but this is something I don't do. I could see that he was furious. I got the feeling that that never really happened to him. Sharp said that she couldn't quit the film because she already signed a contract. When she returned to the set a few days later, the entire crew was asked not to speak to her except the director and the assistant director. The actress said that Lewis also mandated he not rehearse with her. The comedian did not interact with her or acknowledge her unless they were on camera together for a scene. Hope Holiday was fresh off a breakthrough role in Billy Wilder's The Apartment. I saw, I've seen her in that. She's great in that. When she was cast in the Jerry Lewis movie The Ladies' Man. On the first day of work, Holiday said that Lewis invited her into his dressing room and pressed a button that locked the door shut. Then he starts to talk to me. You know, you could be very attractive, but you wear your pants, you wear pants all the time. 
I've never seen you in a skirt. You have nice legs and you've got nice boobs. You've got good boobs. Then he starts to talk to me about sex. He starts to talk dirty to me. And as he's talking, the pants open and the ugly thing came out and he starts to, and I don't want to say this on air, but she uses a term for masturbate. He starts to masturbate. I was frightened. I just sat there. And then I wanted to leave so badly. So you could see the full documentary and read the expose if you want on Vanity Fair's website. Uh, I'll tell you what. I um, Both of these women sound to me as if they're telling the truth. Again, uh, how do I uh, judge based on what they say in one documentary? You can't. I have no idea. But that's the thing is you have no idea. But this is now more than this is 60 years after these incidents have occurred. And Jerry Lewis is dead. Um, And I don't know. There's just something to me that strikes me as so inappropriate. About accusing a man of sexual harassment and or sexual assault, two things that are devastating to someone's reputation in the current climate when they can't defend themselves. And look, I'm not questioning how these women want to handle their sexual assault issues or sexual harassment incidents, and I'm sure it takes a lot of courage for these women to come forward. But the guy's dead five years How we, I mean, he can't sit there and say, that's not what happened. He can't sit there and say, no, this behavior was consensual. He can't sit there and apologize for it. He can't sit there and offer an explanation or I was drunk or I was high on pills or this is what we did in the 1960s. He can't respond. And I just feel if you're going to publicly accuse someone, which these women have done, of serious misconduct, which this is, you should at least do it while they're alive, while they have an opportunity to rebut that. Once they're dead, I don't know. Uh, I thought the same thing about how Katie Couric treated Larry King. Uh, I mean, she didn't accuse him of this kind of behavior, but not that far off. Tell me what you think. 800-848-WABC, that's 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on any of the other other stories that we've uh, we've covered thus far, you're welcome to, 800-848-9222. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Hey, look, um, on the the kid with the sports. Tom, weren't you you on already uh, today? No, that was there's two of us, man. They'll get us mixed up all the time. Yeah, I okay. All right, there's go ahead. Two Tom. Toms from Bronx. You used to call me the Fugazi, if that was you. Right. No, there's a main you, Tom from the Bronx. There's the one yeah, that says, you, Yes, uh, I'd just like to say now oh, yeah, yeah. But there was another Tom guy. from the Bronx. Right. <laughs> there was another Tom from the Bronx that called earlier about Ukraine and NATO, and you claim that was not you, well, Tom. Maybe I love your show, man. There's no harm in that. I'm yeah, not committed. Yeah. I, I knew that was show. you. I knew that All was right. you. I just want to talk. Okay, okay. the tell. kid 
about playing the sports, you know, you can't force nobody to do nothing. Because if you do, even if you ask them to do it for half a year and they really don't like it, they're going to be a disservice to the team that they are because they're not going to play hard. It don't seem, they, they might not play hard. Matter of fact, they might play to get cooked, kicked off. So I don't think you will get 100% from the kid who does not like what he's doing. You know, number two. Curtis and you, you know, the the, the callers squeal on y'all, right? They squeal on y'all. They tell like what y'all say about each other. They really believe that y'all are for real. You know what? They believe that y'all are really having a thing, you know, that's not good. You know, that y'all really beefing. I don't understand that, you know. Well, thank you. Um, you know, vote only if you feel a person is good. Don't vote for no other reason. Only if you feel a person is good. I got one more thing to say. What has Kamala Harris done that was wrong? I don't want to hear that she didn't do nothing, because if she didn't do nothing, why are y'all bashing her? I don't know what she did wrong. Please tell me. I'm going to hang up. Tell me what she has done wrong so far in her political career. Uh, well, I mean, she was put, uh, again, I don't want to make this a whole Kamala Harris discussion, uh, but she was put in charge of the border situation. It doesn't seem like she's handled that well at all. Um, it seems like... Um, Her, you know, I mean, as vice president, you don't do much. But if you believe the stories that are coming out of the White House, it seems like um, she's not necessarily on the same page with what the Biden administration is doing. And it's really you didn't get the sense that uh, the remarks that she gave in Munich were indicative of any sort of coherent or consistent foreign policy when it came to Russia. So. I don't know. I I think it's tough to judge a vice president because so much of their role is defined by the administration in which they're serving. So, um, you know, I'm not a guy that sits there and beats up on Kamala Harris. But if they say, all right, you're in charge of X and then you fail in X, I think then you maybe you you do deserve some criticism. And she was in charge of the border. And I don't think the border situation has improved. Uh, Kudos to you, though, Tom, for fooling Molly into letting you on the air twice. Andrea is in Sussex County. Hello, Andrea. Hello, how are you doing? Good evening, Frank. I just wanted to, I'm a retired teacher and uh, saw hundreds, thousands of children in my 34-year career. The point is, um, you are, in my opinion, you're projecting too far in advance, focusing on future sports. Focus on the now. And the now is basically, uh, you need to model your love of physical activities for your son right now. That would include evening walks. Uh, you now have your home with a backyard. You can do ball tosses. You can set up um, a t-ball stand eventually so he can practice uh, batting. Um, you can have, a, my husband did this, set up a mini golf course um, area in your yard. He took plumbing pipes, you know, the white plumbing pipes that are big. He cut them into sections. He sunk them into the lawn so they were below the grass line. And our son was able to, you know, hit golf balls all over the place. Oh, that's cool. Um, it was cool. Uh, badminton, uh, oh, basketball court. They sell, they sell little basketball things. We have one in the attic uh, where he could be shooting baskets when he's two or three or attempting. Um, ping pong table, pool table in the basement, uh, croquet, set that up in the yard. Uh, focus on the entire family being engaged in physical activities now. It doesn't start when they're 
10 or 11 or 12. It starts with the entire family and being physically engaged. You know, the evening walks, I think, are very important. Even if he's in a, a snuggly and somebody's carrying him or pushing him in a, in a, um, in a carriage. I know my, my son did, they got a cute little, uh, it was like a car, that a little pink car for their daughter. And it had a handle and they were able to push her. Every night they go for a walk. And then eventually when she got old enough, she was the one pushing the car. And uh, it's your, you're projecting in a very subtle way as far as your child is concerned. I think the important thing is don't lecture and don't talk things to death. Yeah, well, yeah. thank you, uh, Andrea. I'm not a lecturer in spite of the fact that uh, I spend four hours a day lecturing you. In off-air, I'm not a lecturer at all. I mean, I think even the people that work here would tell you that. Hey, uh, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame next, and we have currently one open line, but more will open up as people get called upon. If you want to make your voice heard on any subject for 15 seconds, now's the time. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight, uh, with you until 5 o'clock, where you get to hear the WABC early news. Uh, during that 5 a.m. early news, you could hear me a couple of times doing a business report. Now, most of that business report is not written by me. Uh, I feel, I guess they feel like my melodious tones just convey a sense of credibility as I tell you what's happening business-wise. I think the stories are selected by our uh, vice president of news Richard Schwartz, and then the actual script is written by Frank Diaz, who does a lot of the writing. So um, Frank gives me a uh, script each day, and I can look up what the stock market did yesterday. And so I said, you know, just put market update, and I'll know what to do. And I'll say the Dow Jones did this, and the NASDAQ did that. But today it's a very interesting script in that it says – Report, meaning right where it would say market report, it says report, mention Russia if that helps. Now, I'm trying to figure out what that means. Mention Russia if that helps. If it helps who? If it helps investors? If it helps me? Why would mentioning Russia help me? Or you? Or an investor? Or the Russians? Or the Ukrainians? I'm trying to wrap my head around what that means. Mention Russia if that helps. You're a little weirdo, you know that, though? If it helps who? I don't know. Uh, well, I, you know, tune in next hour to find out if I mention Russia and if that helps. 800 848 Time for... 
other side of midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Corey in Brooklyn. Hello, Corey. Frank, great show as always. Want to give a shout out to Russell and White Plains. Haven't heard from them in a while. And I wanted to know if Curtis had something to do with the disappearance of that Gavone um, that formerly inhabited your weekend show. Roger in Massachusetts. Yeah, regarding the bathroom tile, remember they have to be smooth and flat like glass, the traditional type of tile. It can't be porous or anything like that. Maybe you can put a little dab of soap on the, on the thing. And no grout in the way. Joe in Orange County. Hey, Frank. Kamala Harris and Joe Biden did nothing in their whole political career. And put some bourbon on that tile. That'll clean it. <laughs> That's a waste of bourbon. Ray in Woodhaven. The Floridories. That's the new name chosen for the Washington football team, right? <laughs> and finally, Mitchell in Manhattan. Read the Jane Machine by Richard Blasberg and Twisted Justice at CNN.com. Thank you, Mitchell.